Hey everyone, this is John. And this is Ryan. And this is Wes. Yeah. <laughs> and Wes will say nothing else for the rest of the show. Yeah, that's it for Wes. And this is the Nintendo Show, the best Nintendo podcast on the internet. This is going to be the retro show for the month of June 2022. We're going to peek back in time 21 years. And what a time to be alive it was. It feels weird that Wes isn't here to get mad that I say that. I'm throwing off my game here a little bit. But what we do on the Retro Show is we're going to talk about like uh, the video games that came out back in June of 2022. And also the other like pop culture kind of stuff. Uh, movies and music are the big things that we're going to get into. So I guess we'll just uh, jump right on it. As we usually do, we start with some historical events for context. I have a couple of things. Did you have anything? Uh, I got a few things as well. Um, do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first, or how, how do you want to break it down? I'm not sure. I don't know what. I'm not sure what you have. I only have some vague notes here. I don't. Nothing like super huge in terms of events. A couple of sports things. Yeah. Uh, there was the Ngandu train disaster. I'm tired of talking about vehicular like transportation disasters. Uh, super tragic train crash. Um. But there's also the, the Stanley Cup was in June of 2022. The Red Wings beat the Hurricanes. I think the Red Wings are in Detroit. Yes, that's right. And the Hurricanes are like in one of the Carolinas. I think they're, maybe? yeah, they're based out of either North or South Carolina. But yeah, I, and then there's the, the, the NBA stuff. Do you have anything about the NBA finals? Oh, no, yeah, just that it was a, uh, a sweep. This com- this was the Lakers versus the Nets, and this is like the... When they were still in New Jersey. Right, yeah. So, hey, you know, uh, wait, did you said the Red Wings, they won the Stanley Cup? Okay, so Jersey Jersey fans at least can hang their head on that. You know, they, they are still title town, just not for NBA. Because, yeah, the Lakers would sweep them uh, in this series. Uh, this was, of course, like the end of a three-peat this was the third year of a three-peat for the lakers in which they won the title um you know this was your Shaq won uh the mv the finals mvp uh obviously kobe bryant was there as well uh that core duo but then also Derek fisher rick fox robert ory that was their starting lineup that's a damn good starting lineup too big shot bob yeah and on the other side of the uh uh, of the matchup, Jason Kidd was like the premier star for the Nets, um, and these guys aren't scrubs. But Kenyon Martin and Richard Jefferson were his two main supporting pieces, and those are obviously not going to pair up that well in, in a lineup yeah, like this. I was I was looking at the roster for this New Jersey Nets team, and for the season, no one averaged more than fourteen points a game mm-hmm. or fifteen points a game. Uh, it, it made me wonder, like, who else was in the East in 2002 that these guys were the ones who were coming out of the conference? Because it seemed like they were way overachieving. I think I looked up the Eastern Conference Finals, and I think they went through Boston that year. Not mm-hmm. that I even remember who was on Boston's team. I think it was them. But, yeah, um, that's that's tough for them. And for what it's worth, the Nets were a good team, and they'll make it to the finals next year as well. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. They will, Look at them go. Of course, they're, you know, they're... Still in a drought. They haven't won a title, so you know they're obviously not going to win it then either. Uh, but yeah, kind of kind of cool to see a little bit of history. Yeah, it's always nice to see some some parity throughout the league to see different teams get in. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, right now, um, like in the year twenty twenty three, we of course just finished the NBA Finals of this year, and uh, the Denver Nuggets won. Mm. And the De- Denver Nuggets have never won a nba championship so hey they did it yeah yeah good for them good for them that's pretty awesome 
Um, I don't think, uh, of course, the, the Denver Broncos have won a Super Bowl. I don't think the Rockies have ever won a World Series. They're they the only in ones. The World Series. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. There is a, a meme joke I saw where it was basically the other three Denver franchises making fun of the Rockies for having not won shit. Mm. Because the Avalanche have won. I think the Avalanche just won like last year. They won the Stanley Cup oh, the shit. prior year, maybe the year before that. Very recently, I know they won. Um, the Denver Nuggets have now won, and the Broncos have won, I think at least three titles like i think they got two with elway and then that one with um peyton manning so not with diva though sadly no but you know they wouldn't have gotten there with peyton if it weren't for the tivo years it's true so i guess a year (laughs) it was like one year (laughs) (laughs) anyway um there was actually some the the, the rockies of course have uh, never won a world series but you know Oh, it's yeah. it's a tough town for baseball. Didn't tough they have, altitude? Didn't they have a really good? I want to say shortstop or third baseman that was like a Gold Glove winner every year. I'm trying to think of who their guy was. I know they had one really really good player on the Rockies for like the past, you know, ten years. Uh, let's see. Like was was it? Um, now now that I'm on the spot here, I'm, I'm completely blanking. It might have been Trevor Story, who is now with the uh, Red Sox. No, I don't think it was him. I don't know. I don't. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I'm not sure who it would have been. But no, you're you're right. They did Nolan Arenado. Oh, that's it, Nolan I, Arenado. And I think he's with uh, the Astros now. No, no, the 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 Cardinals. Yeah, he's with the Cards currently. But yeah, I know for like the longest time he was like a, a marquee player for them. Mm-hmm. Any rate, any rate, that's enough of that sport. Uh, oh, there was actually more sports stuff. Uh, also, oh, yeah. as is usual for the NBA Finals, it happens in the same month typically as the NBA Draft. Yep. Um, and it's actually a pretty bad NBA Draft <laughs> as well. Um, you do get Yao Ming, uh, who is a Hall of Fame center and really big just in the grand scheme of things for opening up uh, the NBA to Asian markets. He was a very big player over there and got a lot of interest in the sport. Um and, you know, if you look through the list, it's really not a lot of talented players there. I mean, not a lot of good players. Amari Stoudemire, Carlos Boozer are in the mix, and they're, you know, quality players. But skimming through that list, it's pretty rough. Mm. So that was not the year to be drafting high or a lot. <laughs> and one more sports thing. Apparently, we I don't even think we talked about this. It's such a big deal for the world, but, you know, we really don't care at all about soccer but apparently the 2002 world cup concluded in japan Who Happen- won? happens every four years apparently brazil beat germany 2-0 okay yeah go brazil yeah good for them yeah well should we move over to some some video games oh i have a couple more uh events oh non-sports related okay. yeah uh so apparently i don't know if you've ever watched much of this show but crank yankers premiered Oh, sure. On Comedy Central. It's a a puppet skit show where they're making prank phone calls. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of like a a jerky boys kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it it had its moments, but it was, I wouldn't go back and say it's a particularly worthwhile thing to revisit. Now, what is worthwhile to revisit, also premiering The Wire. Um, I don't know if Mm -hmm. you watched The Wire, but I love that. It's a sort of a gritty modern take on your typical crime drama. I think that modern police procedurals are so rote they're also so just like boilerplate and standard and uh serialized and the wire uh told very long narratives um and where it was based on um real life interactions between organized crime and law enforcement in baltimore great great series would absolutely recommend people check it out 
And that's it. That's all I got. That's my, you know, non-gaming, non-music, non-movies. Okay. Uh, video games. So I think we, we start with the probably the, the big one for the GameCube, certainly. Um, and it, it is Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem, which is you know a, a bit of a, a cult classic. There's a lot of love for this game around the internet. It won't end up being a commercial success, which is unfortunate, but it will uh, get a lot of acclaim. So this game was developed by a... Oh, hang on. Let me get... Uh, my facts up here. It, get the exact release date. It's out June 24th, 2002. Developed by a company called Silicon Knights, who will do a couple of high-profile GameCube games, uh, Eternal Darkness, and they'll, they'll do a remake of Metal Gear Solid for the GameCube as well. Um, it's kind of a, a short-lived company founded in 1992, and they make it all the way to uh, 2014. But the last game they released is going to be in 2011. They end up uh, getting into some legal troubles with uh, Epic Games over the use of the Unreal Engine system. They'll end up like suing Epic Games and then getting countersued uh, for, for the illegal use of some stuff. Um, have to pay out like 4.5 million bucks, which seems like such a small amount now, but for a small company like uh, Silicon Knights, it ends up sinking them. It was um, founded by a couple of people, including one guy named Dennis Dyack, who will, like, after the the GameCube days, will become like this this sort of like a uh, uh, loudmouth, sort of outspoken person within the gaming industry. Um, a bit of high profile, especially in Nintendo circles, because of his involvement in, in games for the GameCube. But he'll he'll run his mouth like uh, he lo- a guy who loves being interviewed. We'll put it that way, um, and he'll talk about things like. Uh, how we're, we're heading toward like a one-console future, how game consoles will be more akin to things like DVD or Blu-ray players, how there'll be like one format and you'll play anybody's game on anybody's system. Still hasn't happened yet. Because um, Microsoft heard that interview and was like, eh, maybe we don't do that. Maybe we don't <laughs> let, what's his fucking name, Dennis Didak, call the shots around here. Right, so... so uh, and then he'll, he'll also like uh, go on to... Have a lot of unfulfilled promises, uh, specifically about you know doing a sequel to this game, probably their their most well loved uh, game from this developer, Silicon Knights. And then he'll like one day, like uh, actually not well, a little while ago now, like 2015, 2016 sort of area, he'll like do a Kickstarter campaign to do a spiritual successor to Eternal Darkness. Um, which will he'll, he'll almost make the goal sort of shut down the Kickstarter and say they're going to reboot it, and then like and totally turns and uh, totally evaporates. It becomes nothing. So uh, a guy who like talks a big game but never really fully delivers, but had a couple of really successful, uh, in, uh, critically speaking, games on the GameCube, including Eternal Darkness. And this is a, a franchise. It is owned by Nintendo. So we could not really a franchise because there's a game, but it's a trademark that's owned by Nintendo. So it might be appropriate to put in the tier rankings one day, maybe not. Um, but it is something where Nintendo for years and years and years has renewed the trademark, um, but never done anything with the property. And there are like some like vocal people, a very small vocal group on the internet that, uh, 
is not happy with that, wants to see a sequel to this game or wants something to, to happen with this series. And I think for, for good reason. Um, as far as like horror franchises go, there's not really a whole lot that Nintendo had to offer back in 2002. I think we talked about one of the only other horror games on the GameCube a couple months back with another Resident Evil remake. And like, uh, I think like uh, it could be um, speculated that Resident Evil ate this game's lunch a little bit and because it was able to come out first and it's a much more recognizable franchise. And in my opinion, the gameplay uh, sort of progression is a bit more compelling than Eternal Darkness. But anyway, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Did you have anything about this game before I get into some of like the 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 more granular details? All right, and uh, I guess we have a, a surprise guest joining us after all. Hey, there he is. R- real quick, where did you say I was? Uh, nowhere. We, oh, we you just didn't we, say I, I pretended to be you and said you weren't going to say anything else the rest of the episode. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty that's pretty solid. Yeah, that works. But we were talking about uh, Silicon Knights. We did some like the the higher level stuff about uh, the the developer, and we haven't really gotten into gameplay yet. And I was about to kick it over to Ryan to see if he had anything he wanted to say about this game before we got. Into- oh yeah, so. I actually did have a little bit of a thought on yeah. that with like um, so Eternal Darkness. You're right, sold like shit. Mm-hmm. It's had very poor sales, but there is like a deeply dedicated community to it. I did not have to look far to find like three or four hour plus long like video retrospectives about this game. Yep. Like it really left an impact with people that liked it a lot. They they. Uh, you know, it, it kind of helps them. It seems like that the entire foundation of this is built upon Lovecraft, which is public domain. So, you know, they can kind of do what they want with it. Like, they didn't have to chase for some other IP yeah. to make sense yeah, of this. Yeah, a lot of, like, the... They, they could just... Like, the, yeah. the premise of the game is, is built around a lot of, like, those Lovecraftian and some other authors as well. Uh, sort of, like, mythology about, uh, like, elder gods and ancient gods. Like they, In the game, they call them the ancients. And there's even, like, um, a sort of semi-difficulty setting right at the start of the game when you're play, playing as, like, an introductory character where, you know, you, you pick from, like, a red, a green, and a blue, like, pedestal in a triangle, and that will sort of calibrate um, how enemies will attack you. Like, if you choose the red enemies will be like more like uh, uh, physically powerful uh and if you pick like the the blue they'll hit heavier with magic and if you pick the green they're going to drain your sanity meter faster yeah i saw and from watching a few of those videos i noticed that that was a cool mechanic was the sanity meter um which isn't it seems to do all kinds of crazy things with the game itself um a lot of like meta fourth wall breaking stuff not just that it would just put objects in your environment. It's not like um, I'm trying to think of a good example where like ghosts just start attacking you and you got to fend off the ghosts. It's a lot crazier than that. Um, and it seems like they uh, do a lot with sound that will manipulate you as you're playing. Completely change the way the controller works. Apparently they were saying that they were very inspired by, you know, in Metal Gear Solid when you're doing that one fight where you have to unplug the controller and plug it into the other port. Yeah. That they wanted to make that that they, they, that moment in gaming, which really kind of goes outside the mold of how games play. Those were the kind of things that they wanted, including literally like having the game fake crash. 
mm-hmm. if your sanity meter went completely out of control. Yeah, yeah, that's the game's biggest claim to fame is this sort of sanity effect. And how it works is when you're playing the game, I there are enemies that are just kind of unavoidable. They'll spot you, and there are other enemies where you can sneak up on them. But when an enemy sees you, it will drain like this this secondary health bar almost called your sanity. Um, and the lower it gets, the different sort of uh, uh, meta effects will happen in the game. And you can regain the sanity by doing things like taking out enemies. Uh, and there are certain enemies where uh, when you, like, if you're able to uh, take them out before they, they spot you, you're able to, like, replenish sanity without it taking a hit. And there are other enemies where, you know, if um, uh, a stronger, when, when you're done, like, taking them out, a stronger enemy will, like, pop out of their heads and it'll drain your sanity even more. So there's always this um, economy to it, to where you're not only managing your HP, but also your sanity meter as well. And I do, I do have a few examples of things that can happen when your sanity gets low. Um when you enter a room, your character's limbs may explode in, in a certain order. Yeah, uh, your character may like shrink or grow when moving around, and like in these sanity effects, a lot of times, well, uh, they'll, they'll happen, and then it, like the screen will turn white. Your character will like scream out some dialogue, and it'll reset you to where you were at the beginning of the room. Um, when you attempt to reload a gun, it may go off in the character's stomach, resulting in a fake death. Uh, when you enter a room, the character's head can fall off, but can be picked up. Um, the something that can like things will happen to like the camera in the game. Uh, like you were saying, the screen will turn black as if the TV turned off. Uh, there are times when you'll get like the mute like the old school mute text in the top corner of the room and the sound will go off. So it'll like pretend like it's doing things to your TV. Uh, it'll lower the gameplay volume and, dis- and display like the green old school volume bar at the bottom of the TV. Uh, the screen will t- turn black and change to like the video input mode. And then uh, you'll, you'll hear your character like as if they're taking damage and dying while you're trying to like get your game back onto the right channel. Uh, when you, you're saving your game, you might get a message that say, are you sure you want to delete all of your saved games? And no matter what you choose, the files will like indicate that they were deleted. Uh, you'll get a blue screen of death. Uh, when you open your inventory, it will like make it look like all of your inventory spaces are empty of all the stuff that you're collecting. Uh, when you enter a room, sometimes the environment is weak upside down. Sometimes when you enter a room, you'll like sink down as if you're going into quickstand and, you, and you'll like be like waist deep in like the wood panels of the floors. So yeah, there, there's a lot of different things that can happen in this game. And like, then that's just in addition to like normal, like uh, scripted jump scare stuff that will happen in the game. Like if you're walking down a hallway and there's like a, a bust, like a marble bust, it will like turn and watch you walking. Or there are times like specific rooms you'll enter, and when you go in there, you'll see your main character's like corpse in a bathtub full of blood. So you know it'll hit you with those like standard jump scares, in addition to all these other sanity effect things that are happening. Good game for kids. <laughs> One for the children. Yep. Uh, rated E for everyone. <laughs> like the the basic gameplay isn't too dissimilar from like a slower paced sort of uh, hack and slash there's not a ton in the way of things like 
puzzle solving like you would think of of uh, like a Resident Evil or something like that. Um, there, there are times where like you want to use specific items in specific places, but a lot of times it's just like you you're at point A in a level and you're working your way through, kind of a, through a semi maze to get to the end. Um, there are a bunch of different playable characters. Sort of the structure of the game is you have a, your your main character, this girl Alex, who is investigating her grandfather's death in his old mansion where all creepy things happen, um, and you discover books throughout the mansion and you read them and they're stories about characters who have also come into like some sort of contact with the ancients or these elder gods that are trying to bring themselves back to earth and when she reads these stories about them you'd like take over as that character and play through as them uh there's this roman soldier guy who's one of the first ones you play through as there's this uh a kid um i think like persian or something in ancient mesopotamia uh, you, there's a section where you play through like actually as your uh, like an uh, uh, ancestor of yours like in the 1800s and these characters will you know have different sorts of weapons and equipment like your ancestor will be able to fight with a gun or whereas the the kid in Persia the, the in, in ancient Mesopotamia will have like a sword um, and the all the enemies you encounter you'll be able to target different body parts you can target their arms you can target their head or their torso wherever you think you're going to uh, like do the most useful damage but yeah this uh this game um definitely very steeped in the sort of uh lovecraftian horror like you were saying uh very like uh eldritch horror uh very occult and the the symbolism and the tones throughout the game um, it's, uh, it, it is pretty unfortunate that it didn't end up doing better than it did. Ryan, do you have any sales numbers offhand? I didn't, uh, I don't offhand. It, it didn't break a million. No, it did not. I know at least that. I think maybe a couple hundred thousand. Uh, let me see if I can quickly get you some numbers here. So yeah, they just simply confirmed that it sold less than half a million. Mm, yeah. That's, that's not good. That's not good at all. Um, Japan sold about 27,000, or sorry, not uh, 17,000 mm. copies, and Canada sold 20,000 copies. And that's not very, it's kind of a shame. It really is a shame. I think, like you're saying, it's a case of bad timing. Um, you know, they're releasing this. It was just a month prior, right, that Resident Evil had come out. A month out. or two, maybe? Um, two months at most. Yeah, so it, it's going to already be compared to that. And you don't, again, a blessing and a curse, you know, that they're using the Lovecraft's content because it's free but it's also you know nowadays i feel like there's a little bit more you know appreciation for it but at the time it was probably just like all right what is are it? you guys yeah. generally positive about this game or yeah for sure okay for sure. i actually I, I do own a copy i've never actually finished it um probably just also because of, of, of timing because I didn't. I obviously didn't own it when it was brand new, but I picked it up used a while later. But you know, the 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 tough thing about picking up used old games is there's always new games coming out. So I never got around to actually finishing that one off. But even in 2002, like we were saying, comes out just a little while after Risen Evil and upcoming throughout 2002, we're getting like uh, uh, Metroid and Wind Waker and Mario Sunshine. So you got three really big heavy hitters in one year. So you know, it's it's understandable that this game gets buried underneath all that stuff. But super positive reviews. So like 
Oh yeah, like nine and a half out of ten mm. down the line. Yeah, and everybody loves this. Game. Always ends up on like lists of hidden gems for the GameCube, or even like just top ten GameCube games. Um, and really, really well loved. And it's it's a shame that it's not a game that ever gets ported to other systems either. There's two ways to play this game. It's to own a GameCube and a disc, or to emulate the thing. So you don't really ever get any options as to how you can engage with it. And I am yeah, that's kind of a bummer. That's kind of a bummer because this one does seem pretty cool, and it seems like it was a labor of love for the developers. So yeah, you can, if you so choose, get yourself a used copy on Amazon. Going price is about uh, 160, 170 bucks. Yeah, as high as uh, two hundred bucks. You know that's that's what happens when there's like this collector's market now that exists for a game that sold like absolute. Cheap. Yeah, it's true. There are going to be a number of GameCube games where, you know, be, because it wasn't a system that was hugely successful commercially, uh, there are games that don't get big prints, so they'll be, you know, hot commodities like this game and games like uh, uh, Pikmin Two and. A uh, fire emblem. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it'd be really great to see this game get uh, ported to a different system. Uh, I don't think it's likely. Likely though, I think um, th- this is is probably going to be a a singular game that just kind of continues to fade into obscurity and will be. All right, we're not going to officially add it to the tier ranking, but better or worse, as its legacy, better or worse than Chibi Robo. Oh, better, better. I, I well, you know, I I don't think that like if it was going to go in a tier, it will probably end up, uh, in the same tier as Chibi Robo, but like much higher, like on the plus end, or perhaps even a tier above. But you know, it's it's tough to put this thing in a in a in a tier group that's anything past a failure because it's not coming back. But you know, it, it's I think like all of the affection you take for all of the Chibi Robo games combined do not equal the affection that people have for this yeah. game. Consistently in like the list of best of GameCube games, no Chibi Robo games are considered best of in any system that they're on. Yeah. And I would just say one thing if if uh you know if if we're not doing a good job of selling it, then Ragnaroks is a YouTube like long form content creator. Made a great video about mm. about this and kind of uses it as a uh spring springboard into other topics about horror and what makes horror good so i would recommend i would recommend it also yes yeah chibi robo is a very big component of it i don't want to spoil anything Mm -hmm. and it's it's, an underrated or, or underrepresented genre on nintendo systems especially of the time um I, I will take an opportunity to to throw some shade at a particular video i saw i won't call them out by name because i don't remember but it sort of start, started out by saying like um nintendo as a company didn't make a good transition into polygonal games because the n64 was a failure um I, I don't know what sort of like perspective he's coming at it from, but I don't. I, I wouldn't consider the N sixty four a failure. In fact, the best early po- po- uh, polygonal games of that generation were like the Nintendo ones, 
uh, Mario 64, Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask, maybe throw Star Fox on there, GoldenEye. Like, those are genre-defining experiences on the system. Now, I, I do think that Nintendo struggled, of course, gaining the, the third-party support that they had on the Super Nintendo. We will see things get a little bit better on the GameCube, but it still won't be great. Um, but, like, the, the the idea that, you know, they failed at making polygonal games is total nonsense, but I think it's legitimate that they struggled to get, like, the more mature cons, uh, content on their systems uh, mature as in like defined as sort of like a, a grim dark like heavy subject matter sort of thing so this guy in the video was totally wrong that's all i'm saying uh so i think when we we're, we're doing the uh the ranking here i think this game easily goes into the top 10 um right now our top five is smash brothers resident evil rogue squadron Pikmin and Luigi's Mansion. Do you guys think it goes above any of that stuff? I never played the game, so I had to defer to your guys' judgment. I'll make a total judgment call. This is totally scientific what we're doing here. <laughs> Ryan, you got any opinion? Um, that Pikmin is lame. <laughs> and I think that oh. this game looks cool and is therefore better than Pikmin. Ryan feeling very confident that we're over Skype call. <laughs> oh, yeah, that fist would be flying right now otherwise. I'm 100% comfortable putting it over uh, Pikmin. Um, and, and, you know, maybe, maybe that is because, like, it was a one-off thing, whereas Pikmin will get future games, so I don't feel the need to, to step up to the plate for Pikmin all that much. It's a series that keeps on going. Um, I kind of want to put it above Star Wars as well. What do you guys think? I think that's acceptable. Okay, but not about Resident Evil. I think Resident Evil, as a, as a video game, is much more successful. I mean, that's so, too much of, of an apples to apples comparison, and one of them was genuinely mm. successful. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. One of them had like commercial success, uh, and then also like as I was talking about before, I, I like the gameplay loop in Resident Evil better, the gameplay progression, and that it's much more about. Uh, managing your inventory and working your way through this maze. Whereas you get a little bit of that in Eternal Darkness, but it's much more of like uh, an action game and they're going more for the jump scare. And I think Resident Evil is just as a series much more replayable because you are trying, like, you can try to maximize your efficiency through the game. That's the sort of thing that I like out of uh, video games and horror games. So we are going to put Eternal Darkness breaking into the top five, coming in hot. It is our number three GameCube game. Ryan, you got some some PC games? Uh, I got one game to kind of mention, and then a bunch to just sort of talk about in aggregate. Um, the the okay. one game to mention being uh, Neverwinter Nights. It's a PC game that came out uh, from a company. I'm... I have a lot to say about you this do? game. <laughs> oh, hell Tell yeah. What you think. I got it for the Switch. Go ahead, man. Tell me about it. No, no, no. I, uh... I think it needs to be a PC game, and it's hot garbage on the Switch. Oh no! Ouch. Is it is it the mouse and keyboard? You need the mouse and keyboard. Yeah, it's I I I'm always looking for a good like D and D video game because it it's nobody really seems to do it right. Um, but it gives you the full breakdown like a D and D. It gives you the full character break, pick your class, your race. You 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 break the whole thing down with that and everything. And there's different tons of choices of things they have prestige classes so i'm guessing this is like 
since this is 2002, I guess it's based on... I don't know about the old D&D, so it's probably based off, like, 2E or 3, whatever. Uh, it's I supposed don't to be based off of Forgotten Realms 3rd uh, edition. 3rd edition, yeah. yeah. Okay, so it, it's it's coming off of 3rd edition. Um, it has this little, like, tutorial area you can kind of go through and learn the game. I only made it a little bit past the tutorial level in the chapter before I was like, I, this is almost unplayable. Um, the big issue is, especially if you're trying to play like a, a spellcaster class, like a, a sorcerer and wizard, I made one of each. And the only one I really found success in is the ranger, because it was just a straight auto attack. But the spellcasters, they... Um, it's too many action wheels, and that's how it works mm. because it's not a keyboard and mouse. You can do your action wheels, and you have like your main action wheel that you can shoot that you have to like select your general commands, and then there's another action wheel that pops up that you can edit and adjust. And in the main action wheel, there's an option to go to your spells, and then there's another thing it, it, you have to go through like almost menus through the main action wheel to get to your spells. And then you can set spells in the secondary action window, but the issue with that is when you run out, they're just taking up a spot in your action window, and then you have to bring up your spell book to equip a different spell that you have slots on. Um, because it's not a mana system, it's based off 3E. So you have X amount of... Instead of breaking it down like 5th edition, where you have X amount of 1st level spells and X amount of 2nd level, each spell has X amount of casts. And so let's say I cast Magic Missile twice, I'm out of magic missile. I had to take that off my action wheel if I want to put a different spell on. And there's only a certain amount in the action wheel. Oh, that sounds a lot like and the first Final Fantasy. Where, you know, it's not that you, like, have just a general, like, here, here's your MP, here's your mana. It's like you can cast fire three times when you're at this level. And then you got to go heal up before you can cast it again. And then as you level up, you're able to cast it more times. Yeah, I'm guessing it's going to be something like that. And since this is even 3rd edition, your cantrips, which in 5th edition, you have unlimited uses of because they're cantrips. In 3rd edition, there are limited amount of casts in it. So you just flat out run out of spells. Like, there was one combat area uh, that I had to go into, and I'm fighting them out, and I just completely ran out of spells. Um, which... I didn't really even need to cast. It was her tutorial area, so just stab one with a dagger did the job. But it was just kind of one of those things where I was looking at this like, if I'm running out of spells against mobs that I'm one-shotting with daggers, what's it going to be like later on when I'm against guys who are a little beefy and everything like that? Um, it, it was straightforward. It'll go here, talk to this guy, he'll teach you how to do this, and then you go here and like, oh no, enemies popped up. It's, it's a lot of talking as well. And you, it's one of those D&D kind of games where it doesn't like hold your hand at all. It's pretty much, we're going to tell you everything in conversation and then you figure out where to go. Because um, it's a GameCube game or a compu old computer game, 2002. So when I got done with the tutorial, it told me I had to go to some place for some reason and then I ended up like in the middle of a prison outbreak for some reason and it was just me against like four guys constantly and the other issue I was having with this on GameCube opposed to what a simple clicking clickable mouse is, I had a hard time selecting the right enemy here and there and I didn't know if I had selected one if I was going to attack because it was still kind of going off of like I hit then you hit kind of thing. It, it just, it didn't, it didn't feel good 
like the, the whole game did not feel good at all on the on the switch it, it just there was multiple times where i'm trying to heal my ally but i had to equip an individual potion i had three potions of inventory i had to equip a potion onto my action wheel to use said potion sounds like it's got some pretty severe interface issues yeah, it, it just it, it didn't. Well, a lot of this, a lot of this sounds good. like it's hotkeys. You would you would probably just have these assigned yeah. to hotkeys on a keyboard. Word. I could see this being good on mouse and keyboard because um, it, it was just it was just management issues. And were you playing with other people? Yeah, I mean, you're just no, just me. Is it party based? Like, do you have like multiple characters? You're playing as one person. You're one person. I, I did recruit one guy to help me through this little area. Um, but he acted on his own. This was an NPC. And there weren't and like then, any like sort of like directives like, and nothing you could like say, hey, behave this way. No, nothing like that. I didn't have anything of those kind of options as well. In the other area, I was able to recruit a rogue, but I didn't because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, you know what? You know what game? We're going to take yeah. this tangent really quick. We're really going to jump into the present. You know what game really needs like some really basic AI behavioral patterns is Tears of the Kingdom because if I want one of my little party members to behave aggressively and the other one just to hang back let me let, let me tell which ones to go where I don't need like to issue specific commands but let me tell you get in their face you just hang back and stay next to me oh are you talking about your little spirit things that pop up yep your buddies mm -hmm. it seems like they're mm -hmm. always uh, not there when you need them mm -hmm. and they are there when you're just trying to pick a few things up off the ground and then they shoot shoot those things <laughs> off the list. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, there's multiple times where I'm sitting there and like those big the the blob monster pops yep, up. Sure. And I don't want burn durability or arrows on the thing. It's a it's a one shot blob thing. I'm waiting for my little bird guy to shoot. I'm like, why aren't you shooting him? Mm. Like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and like Ryan to to your point about like them always doing the wrong thing, like blowing your, your shit away. Why couldn't they like Rather than having to be like right next to them and having to issue these commands context sensitive, because like, uh, have you guys done the, the the lightning temple? I have not yet. I have not. No. Okay. Well, there there is um, you you of course get another another buddy from the lightning temple, and the ability that this one has is quite useful. I like it a lot, but the the idea like the the mechanic that you have to be next to this character at all times in order to like initiate it is an issue so I find myself like especially in the heat of the battle like oh I want to use this thing where are they and I have to like be turning the camera around like okay what enemy are they going after right now um, and if they were just like so some basic like interface improvements like uh, click in the analog stick and it changes your face buttons into the the different party members that you have available to initiate their ability, bring them next to you, um, or, or or anything like that, where you can kind of like hotkey these things rather than having to like go up to them and have it be context sensitive. I mean, just use the D pad. Use the D pad. There you go. That was just off the top of your head. Nice and simple. Just be able to set them to your D pad. Yep. Anyway, back to two thousand two. No, no, I need to whistle at my horses. That's. <laughs> That's a very good point. I forgot about the whistling. Do, do you guys like ever use the whistling to use the horse? I most of the time I'm using it to get enemies' attention rather than to call a horse over. Yeah, it, I never have I my know, horse. I never it's just horse, useless. But... Just 
make a monocycle and go. It's I, I nice use, and simple. I use the horse uh, when I'm backtracking. Otherwise, I'm almost always on foot. Um, but I was I was playing through. I was riding through an area that uh, I'd been through before, and there were like some some zone eye construct things. Like okay, let's let's farm some items. It's always useful to have this sort of thing for weapon crafting, or if I need them for later on. So I jump off the horse and I start like raining down some arrows, but the horse keeps going into the middle of the fray. And then like what you were ta- talking about, Wes, those jelly guys, the the yellow chews, start popping up everywhere. And the Zonai are fighting them, and they're exploding, and it's injuring my horse. I'm like, oh my god, my horse is gonna fucking die. And my kids are sitting right there. I'm like, oh god, they're hurting Cookie. I'm like, oh shit, get the horse out of there. Fuck. The, the horse is fine, thankfully. They're tanky. But I was I was generally fearful that I was going to lose a horse. <laughs> All right, back to two thousand two. Um, so, Neverwinter since yeah. Neverwinter since it's like a D and D kind of game, it definitely wants you to um, pay attention to it like you would in like a D and D setting because they just gave this whole big spiel and everything like that. I felt like I needed to start making notes. Like, I, I'm supposed mm. to go here to this area, I gotta talk to this guy, I gotta accomplish this, there's a plague going on, I gotta find the cure for this plague. And after I got done talking to the first person, I was completely lost immediately. Um, it, it's an old game. It, it's got those generic, all the buildings look exactly the same, and it's just corridors. And that's... It, I did I don't know. Maybe I'm bad at games. I... I Maybe it would have felt better back in 2002, but now it doesn't feel very modern anymore. Well, it also had one of those... It had the mini-map, but the map was revealed based on going to that area. And so you didn't just have a map. And so it also wasn't working off those things like regular games do, where they're like, put an icon on the map, go here and figure something out. It doesn't do that. It's just off you go. Um, I don't know. Those kind of games are just kind of... I don't have the right mindset for those kind of games where I have to read five paragraphs to figure out how I'm supposed to go to this one per place and do a thing. Well, I think, um, I mean, so this is a Bioware game. Um, so they are a very successful, you know, game developer. They're responsible for Knights of the Old Republic. Um, but specifically... Mm-hmm. Sonic Chronicles Dark Brotherhood? I was going to say, specifically <laughs> they're responsible for Mass Effect. And Mass Effect is... Mm-hmm. I've, I have never played one through completely, but, you know... I've seen people play them. It is one of the most dialogue-heavy games I've ever seen. Like yes. that, maybe is something that this I company a refined. Bit of but one. yeah, it seems like there's so much, so much decision making is done with dialogue trees that you're just spending so much time going through these discussions. That you know, like when I was watching people play it, it felt like it would be like forty minutes of chatter and then five minutes of action. I mean, which is fine with this kind of game. I mean, it, it's. Like I've said 50 times, it is a D&D based game, and so the story is a big aspect of it. The role play and why you're doing this and stuff like this, but I mean... There's a lot of talking. <laughs> Just is, there, is there voice acting? Uh, bit by bit? Uh, not much. And is it good? Because it's 2002. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I, I, don't, I don't know. Back it, to- it's... I, I will never see yeah. that money but Back again. to Eternal Darkness. <laughs> Apparently the voice acting cast is pretty much the entire voice acting cast from Metal Gear Solid. Virtually everybody yeah. in Metal Gear yeah, yeah. is doing a voice in Eternal Darkness. Just quick side note. I forgot to bring that up earlier. Um, yeah, it, it is kind of like funny. Like 
Because you, you mentioned like something else it had in common with uh, Metal Gear uh, when you had to like switch the controllers around. And it's kind of funny that like, it has all these parallels with Metal Gear, and then the developer, Silicon Knights, will go on to do a remake of Metal Gear on the GameCube. Kind of like funny how it comes for a circle. And that uh, that remake of Metal Gear Twin Snakes, we'll, we'll talk about when it comes up. But it does like do some like further things like not not near like to the same effect as like the the sanity meter, but things where like uh, characters will uh, address things and like little monologues that they're giving like other things that are on your your memory card. Like if you have Eternal Darkness save in your memory card, they'll make a reference to Eternal Darkness. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Oh, I just I guess just to cap off Never Winter Nights, I think we're you know we're kind of wrapping this one up but yeah that was the big thing at the time about this is that it was sort of a pseudo mmo you could have at any given time 64 players on the same server kind of wild i think you know it's probably a game once you get like there's probably more that's what you want to be doing in this kind of game is playing with other people um maybe it would make it a little better experience i don't know but yeah 91 percent on metacritic this game was beloved, very, very well received, and it sold 2 million copies for a PC game. That's a lot. I mean, it's possible I played the wrong Neverwinter. I, I don't know, but that just... Oof. I mean, if it felt like an early 2000s game, I'm sure you found the right one. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it's rough on yeah. Switch. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure it's a better experience on the, on the PC, but I had a hard time even selecting the right enemy, and I didn't even know if I was queued up to attack him because I would select an enemy and I would just stand there and like wait my turn to attack so I'm like I don't even know if I'm about to hit the guy or not like, sounds, it was sounds just, more like it's a bad it, it was sounds more like it's a bad port than a bad game it didn't have an easy system for like ma- item management in your inventory you had to click and drag everything around which on controller it just kind of was kind of awkward but I had to like literally move everything it can just like hit an item and hey equip I had to literally like drag it up to the slot and then I even had to like equip my potions even though they're in my inventory I had to equip them um on my guy and then put them on an action bar it was a lot of management um and I'm like I'm level one I I I don't I had to constantly move my things around in my inventory to organize it. it it the game just felt like a mess on the Yeah, Switch. that's that's a um, lot to throw you into. Like, hey, you just started the game, figure out how to manage all your systems before you get to gameplay. And I, I can see it can be frustrating, like having like a lot of story-heavy things, a lot of um, uh, menus to fiddle around in, and then not being sure if you're doing the right thing. Like the interface and the control issues probably make the story stuff seem more frustrating because you're, you're anxious to get to gameplay, but when you get to gameplay, you're fighting it. So maybe like a better interface would help you get more into the the narrative part of it. It was also weird because when it popped up for like a tutorial to like tell you what to do something, it popped up like a like a uh, like a window like it would be on a PC because it's a PC game. Um, but it had this really big picture of I don't know what the thing is, your menu or whatever, and then the description to tell you how to do was itty bitty and he had to scroll down and like I'm playing on a 55 inch TV that I'm not very far of far from and I had to squint to read this mm. thing I'm like this is like a I, I feel like they could have just edited that just a little bit like it, it I could barely read the tutorial for crying out loud it was just I don't know it, it just don't get it for the switch dear god do not get it for the switch pre-ordered buying it now <laughs> how much did you end up buying it for 
Was that on a sale? It was 24 bucks. Mm. It was 24 bucks. Yeah, I right. just grabbed it for the show. I was like, let's see this how this is, because these kind of games I do like. They had prestige classes in there. I was playing around going like arc, um, arcane That's archer, really and they, they had other things like that. It was, it was, I, I had high hopes, but this, I, I'm not touching this thing again on my Switch, and I'm not getting it for PC. It, it was a fine experiment, but yeah. yeah. All right, two more quick topics before we wrap up gaming, unless there's anything you got, John. No, let's do okay. it. Uh, I just looking through the list of games, unless you wanted to talk about any of the shovelware Game Boy Color or Game Boy Advance. I do games. not. Um, there was eight <laughs> racing games released. I didn't write down all the titles. The biggest one was probably this uh, F1 racing uh, for PS2. I'm guessing that was the biggest one, just by recognition of the title. And then there were four other sports games that came out. A UFC, a boxing, a baseball, and a golf game. I, I guess it's probably just a seasonal cycle of game releases that June is mm. the dumping ground of sports games. Because all that... I wonder why. Like, why not... I wonder, like, are we going to get into July and again be like, eh, there's not really a whole lot coming out. Like, why not spread these things out? I think, I think um, it has to do with the market. Or the, the target audience maybe. is going to be maybe teen, you know, teen and younger kids. And mm. they're all going to be busy during the summer doing stuff, either in school, summer school, or away at camp, or just, just being busy. Um, I think it's kind I'm of sorry, Wes, were you busy during the summers? Because I wasn't. No, <laughs> no. My, a lot of the summers I spent by myself, mm. just in my really. Room. You guys had time. I know. I remember every summer. I always was like super busy with with stuff. It just wasn't the time to be buying again. And it's also summertime. Like, like if you lived in Minnesota and you were spending your June indoors playing video games, like just end end your life right then and there. There's nothing more for you. Like. If you yeah, yeah, to 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 totally summer. agree. Like yeah, if you're, oh, if you're, if you're in Minnesota, Michigan, like hell yeah, get outside. It is so goddamn hot in this state. Yeah, I do. Not, I don't want to <laughs> yeah. be anywhere near the <laughs> That's outside. That's a good point. Maybe Florida's oh. perspective is different than some like Midwesterners. Yeah, I, I figure at a lot of places when summer rolls around, you get to like just do stuff. You know, if you mm -hmm. wanted to really churn video games, there's good four months of the year from probably like December to March where you can't do shit. My, my kids are on summer vacation right now. We'll take this tangent. Um, <laughs> and they're... Uh, I'm trying, trying to give them uh, like things things to do during the summer. Uh, we, we went out to uh, Universal uh, a, a couple weeks back, and then we went over to Volcano Bay last week, and we've been hitting like, some of the local springs on, on their days off. Um, but like, mo like every single like trip that we're making... Like, I'll tell them, like, as we're going there, like, okay, by the time, like, 1 or 2 o'clock rolls around, we're going to get going. Like, why? Why do we have to leave at that point? Because we do not want to be in the midday sun. Yes. It is, it is just awful, even if you're around water, to be, like, like, at a theme park or something at 4 in the afternoon when it is hot as hell and, you, and you're outside. It's just the worst. You know, my, the perspective again would probably be different if I had to pay to get into these places. Like if I were spending, you know, four hundred bucks for the three of us to get in, I'd probably be like, no, we're gonna style down, you're gonna have fucking fun, you're gonna like it. Um, but I don't. We can go back whenever we feel like it. So we'll go and we'll ride six or seven rides, and I'm like, okay, we're getting out of here. We'll do the rest of them next time. Anyway, um, any other video game topics that we need to? 
cover before we move on to some of the other stuff? No, I don't think so. PlayStation kept their price the same this month. It, it, it sure did. further <laughs> reduced the price. <laughs> it didn't want to put the nail into that coffin any further. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that it's, it's I, a weird month. It's, it's a very busy month. There was a lot of games, just a lot of bad games, and a lot of just, like, unimportant... Mm-hmm. Like, next month, there will be one very large game to talk about, just in terms of impact. Oh, that's a good tease. Uh, but yeah, this month, uh, I mean, Eternal Darkness is a really cool footnote, but I don't think there's much there. And Neverwinter Nights was big at the time, but like Wes is saying, like it's probably not anything to go back to. I, I'm, I'm sure, I just on a hunch just looked it up on YouTube, a video of it, and it's like zoomed down, everything's moving real nicely, he's clicking, dragging things around. It's inventory, I'm like, that already looks ten times better than what. it. Uh, terrible on Switch. Just unplayable so let's move over to some music yeah sounds good to me let's let's do you guys get a chance to listen to any of the albums i listen to a few yeah very cool well when they come up just shout them out like you know don't forget to take a point on any of these um i think there's a lot of music actually this is kind of a busy month for music uh first one i got in the pop rock category is maroon 5's debut songs about jane um, you guys, I'm sure, are aware of Maroon 5, right? Probably heard of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, tracks like... Uh, Who's Jane? Jane was apparently his... Uh, I actually looked this up. It was his ex-girlfriend. Um, oh. He wrote a lot of these songs in a when he was with the same core guys in a different named band. And he wrote a bunch of new material that was all based around this sort of, um, you know, hot like hot and cold romance he had with this woman that is quote-unquote jane i don't know if her real name was jane so all of the songs that you're listening to on this record are gen- pretty much about him that's good yeah yeah so i mean at any rate like uh the band um, i'm sure everyone is it's fronted by adam levine but it's not just him um he's actually been in this band with the same core members another guy named jesse carmichael and james valentine have, have been this trio that have made music for this group. If you've never heard them, I mean, I'm sure you've heard them. Tracks like This Love, She Will Be Loved, Sunday Morning. All really, really big songs for them on this album. Sold about 12 million copies. That's a lot. It's a fucking lot of records to sell. Um, I think the songs are big, and uh, foundationally, they made some good pop rock tunes. I think this record sounds a little dated. It sounds a little, um, a little too, I don't know, bland just very generic pop rock with a little bit of like funk influence i guess you could say in the production but yeah like obviously like smash hit for this band they're still going today like adam levine is a huge deal uh so yeah unless you guys have any thoughts we'll move on to the next one no i've, I've never really I, I never got into maroon five mm-hmm. never really enjoyed that yeah particular band and again, yeah. you can't escape them if you're just listening to the uh, positive hits radio. You mm. know, they're they're going to be all over the place. Um, next, I got David Bowie's Heathen. This is his 23rd studio album. I've heard of this guy. Yeah, you're aware of this David Bowie character? Mm. Uh, Bowie, I believe it's pronounced. Yeah. No, no, it's a... Uh, so this was an interesting album just because um, I... I don't know him, his career arc that well. Obviously, I know a ton of Bowie records and, like, his bigger material, but, like, apparently the late 80s and into the 90s were a very bad time for Bowie. Like, he was releasing a lot of music and none of it was good. 
a lot of his albums were getting trashed constantly by critics, so a lot of people are considering Heathen to be the sort of quote-unquote return to form. And when I listen to it, it sounds like that classic Bowie stuff. So maybe he was kind of in the same mindset as Weezer when they made the Green Album and were just like, please love me again. <laughs> please like yeah, me. Please, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want. Just <laughs> <laughs> you got to support my cocaine habit. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting that the second track is a cover song, and it's a cover song of the Pixies called Cactus. And hmm. even for pick the Pixies, it's not even a like a famous song from them. It's just like kind of a random song. I think it's on Surfer Rosa. Uh, like Pixies have a ton of great music that they could pull from. I just don't know why he chose that one. And granted, it sounds good. The whole album actually sounds really, really good. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, this this wasn't the album that made me think Bowie is a genius or anything. It was a fine enough record. Um, I'm sure it's did you know he's got 23 records <laughs> 23 fucking records it's crazy um moving on sonic youth uh released murray street this is their 12th studio album and if anyone doesn't know who sonic youth is they're a really influential band in the 80s and into the 90s uh for noise rock uh they're you know based out of new york city um they released a bunch of classic records that are critically acclaimed um very big on like the indie rock kind of college rock set um yeah did, did you guys by any chance give this one a listen or have any opinions on, i did listen on to this one what'd you think i did listen to this one. I'm, I'm pulling up the uh the wikipedia for a second look at some other it's been a couple of weeks since uh i listened to it i didn't like it yeah i remember that much um seven like, tracks like saying, 45 there, minutes takes yes, a while that, that takes a while for them to do anything wow and there was that is really long. there was one track in particular and I can't remember the name of it, but it is so long, and it, it like it starts off. It's like two and a half minutes. Uh, like, hey, this, this this is really nice. Like, it, was, it was a really nice kind of like mellow track, um, and then that ends, and like it and it turns into you know noise, um, and like the, and the whole time you're listening to it, like okay, they're gonna eventually like bring this all back together. It's gonna go back to the song, and it's gonna make this part of it make sense. And then it doesn't. The track just kind of ends, and it was five minutes of noise with no payoff. So yeah, I was uh, I was by by the end of that track, I was not appreciated anymore. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. I think um, so. I think there is supposed to be something kind of meditative about the way. I, I'm not a huge fan of this album, but I mean, I can kind of see what they're going for. I think that the the methodical way that they have these songs kind of go on and on and this this is a band that is known for being loud as fuck for just being really loud and hitting you with a lot of distortion so with this one they spend a lot of time on the track setting up for those moments rather than just like trying to go right at you with them they're doing a lot of um you know really crisp articulate you can very hi-fi instrumentation that you can hear that then builds up to those big concussive bursts of sound um and yeah i mean it's 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 willfully harsh you know it's not trying to be nice um i can appreciate it but again i'm not going to step up to bat and say this is like an amazing record or anything it's it's okay if, if you like noise rock if you're into post rock as well there's a little bit of post rock in this for you um but uh the way that you're bristling at it i i totally get it was uh, 
uh, Karen Revisited is the track, yeah. and it's 11, 11 minutes know, long, and it's so obnoxious. Again, it's only seven songs, and it's 45 minutes. That's uh, I mean, mm-hmm. for the, the era, for the early 2000s, a 45-minute record is pretty short, uh, comparatively speaking. A lot of people were making 60, 70-minute albums, so this one's not that long. But for seven thoughts, seven unique and thoughts, it seems like- it's kind of long. A lot of like the really good albums that we've been talking about for the past year have like been like 30, 35 minutes. And I think it's a good amount of time because then you're like on one like car ride to work, you're able to digest the whole thing and start it back over again. You know? Oh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Like very few bands in their entire career have produced 30 minutes worth of meaningful music. Like mm. you, you don't need to make a 60, 70 minute album. Double albums are a waste of time frankly like there's very few double albums that are actually worth it like yeah cut two good albums rather than one mediocre one. right right or what you would find is that if you just made the one and then waited two years you'd be like oh i can use those two years to make a better album than mm-hmm. to try to just just because you sat in a studio and, and made some songs doesn't mean everyone needs to listen to them like you really need to i don't know the, the artists do whatever they want to do that's bothers me personally well and i I think i feel like we you know it wasn't too long ago that we talked about something like this like say what you want about the dave matthews band i'll wait Mm -hmm. say whatever you want (laughs) but like they they had an album they were cutting um and then they just they they got a new producer and they made every day and rather than try to jam it all together it's like okay we're gonna bench this other stuff and then they worked on a little bit more and they they released that album years later when when it was when it was done Oh, well. All right, I'm going to move on. Um, we'll go to yeah, Frau yeah. Frau's details, or is it Fru Fru? I don't know how you want to say it. F-R-O-U, F-R-O-U. I don't know this one. Um, it's the only album that this duo has ever made. Um, specifically, it's the project of a woman named Imogen Heap. If you don't know who Imogen Heap is, she's a... If, if the name isn't that sound that familiar, she's an incredibly influential singer in pop music. Um, even if she individually was never that famous, um, she is one of the best singers like ever. She got an incredible voice and a crazy command of it and does all of this beautiful, articulate, emotional singing. Uh, nothing ever just sounds mundane when it when she's singing a song that's absolutely beautiful. But yeah, um, so she made this this like it's electronic pop album that she made with um, another musician named the guy Sigsworth. They released this one album and then broke up the band um, on good terms, though. You, usually you hear about this and then someone goes and does a solo thing and there's going to be bad blood. And there was not that at all. Guy Sixworth was a also a producer. So it's like he had other shit going on in his world. Um, and actually, apparently just a few years ago, they actually got back together and started touring again. They're not making a new album or anything, but um, they're... You know, there actually there is a chance that all of those people that 20 years ago fell in love with this one album might actually get to see it live. So that's cool. I think that's really cool. Oh, and uh, there's a big single on it called "Let Go." Um, "Let Go" is this very ethereal, airy pop song that feels like you're fucking flying through space. It's uh, and her voice again. Oh my god, she has a beautiful, beautiful voice. Um, I would absolutely recommend people check her solo material out. And you know. For that single, Let Go, go back, the whole album, I don't know if it's all worth revisiting, but again, she kind of constantly finds ways to give you beautiful, like, vocal leads and hooks. So, I dig that album. One last pop rock album, and that's Phantom Planet, releases The Guest. They're a power pop band in the vein of 
uh, like Weezer, I guess you could say. They had a big song called California, which was like the theme song for a very, <laughs> very dating it, very early 2000s TV show, The O.C. Um, I don't know if you guys ever heard that band or know that song. Sure. Yeah, yeah I know that song. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's that's this group. Um, it's, it's good enough record. I mean, it's also kind of a weird footnote is that um, actor Jason Schwartzman is the drummer in the band. That's funny. Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, at the time, his career is, is blowing up. He's actually getting a ton of really high-profile roles. So I think it's sometime around 2004 or five, if I remember correctly, he leaves the group. Um, again, mm. not on bad terms. They, they, I think in the little bio I read about him, he still plays with them every once in a while. It's, uh, it's just that, yeah, he, he kind of had bigger things to do than, than be a drummer in this band. They're probably still cashing checks from that one song. Oh, totally. That was that was a huge, huge track for them. I think it's somewhere in mm-hmm. the hundreds of millions of listens on Spotify. And then the second track on that album has like less than a percent of that. <laughs> so they, they had <laughs> that, that's their yeah. That's their no rain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They got one big tune. Um, okay, we'll move on to hip-hop. Um, Atmosphere released God Loves Ugly. This is a band that we talked about about a year ago when they released this Lucy Ford EP collection. Uh, they're from Minnesota. It's a, it's a underground hip-hop. It's this duo. It's the same duo that was on the previous album, um, Slug and Ant. And this is great if you like headphone, like chill hip-hop beats and uh, just sort of slice-of-life rhyming. Um, it's a good record. I would totally recommend it. Then you got Nelly releasing Nellyville back from his album Country Grammar was a huge huge hit when it came out um so this one managed to be like even bigger I think it yeah yeah it's had like six million sales tons of hits hot in here this is the album that has hot in here uh Mm -hmm. Air Force One's big big jam Dilemma was a duet he made with Kelly Rowland then in Destiny's Child and uh Pimp Juice and a track called Work It they were all really, really big. Justin Timberlake, Beanie Siegel are also on here. Neptunes. Not only is Neptunes on here producing a track, Neptunes are the duo that produces Hot in Here, like the biggest track on the album. Just Blaze has also got a track on here. Like, this is... Uh, it's, it's a it's a really good record. I, I really like this record a lot, and I think Nelly has a really uh, fun, carefree delivery and just, just really good rhyming. He just makes like these party hip-hop albums. He's not trying to be hood or anything. I don't think he feels like he has much to prove. He's just doing his thing. And it's, it's a good record. Really, really good. Con- I liked Country Grammar a lot. This is another just smash hit for him. 80 minutes long. Is <laughs> Yeah, this probably... Yeah, but, but hey, if, if you don't... That's too long. If you don't feel the wow, length, right. you know? Again, it's one of those ones where like I did name six that's tracks. What she said. Like, there's six tracks that are worth listening to, and they're all probably four or five mm-hmm. minutes apiece. There's 30 minutes right there of the worthwhile music again the hip-hop albums especially are so self-indulgent they they engage in all of the bloat you could imagine um so moving on one more album to talk about as we are in the millennium i feel we have to bring Mm. up the fact that will smith releases born to rain did you guys give a listen to this album (laughs) Uh, no, no, no. I, I saw like the audience and the critical reception. I was like, yeah, maybe I can skip this one. Sorry, Will. <laughs> yeah, I think this one's a pretty big fall from Grace, especially considering like Millennium probably sold like fucking 20 million copies or something. I'm guessing it sold somewhere in the 15 to 20 million range. 
Um, and then this album, like, didn't sell anything. I think, yeah, it didn't even sell 500,000 units. So, like, what happened Oof. to Will Smith? Where did Will Smith go? Um, and when I listened to this, I was expecting a cringy shit album. And honestly, it's pretty good. If, if whatever you think of Big Willie style and Millennium, it's that. It's the same as that. Um, it's certainly no no worse than either of those records. It's the same thing that he's always done. Um, and I think that's kind of the big problem is that, you know, on this one, he... His formula, too, is that he makes these kind of party uh, hip-hop tracks um, and uses a lot of funk samples that you'll rec- instantly recognize. Um, and they're usually is at least one song that is a tie-in to a movie that he's doing and in this case you got the song nod your head which is uh when i heard it i was like oh yeah i vaguely remember this song this was not like you know the men in black theme or wild wild west or anything like that this is just uh you know just an okay ish song so that's your problem is that his success is oftentimes paired with his film's success and like having a big single on those records it's not there um also he's just kind of a dork like he's always been a dork and his his music has never sounded dorkier um you know this is 1999 was the last time he released an album this is now 2002 and this is post 9-11 not a good time when everybody else in the game is making grittier records for him to be doing the same kind of playboy shit he's always done um, you know, this is also his first album after being kind of not dissed, but being called out by Eminem um, for the fact that people would give Eminem a hard time about the fact that he curses and Will Smith doesn't, and like Will Smith, like, oh, well, sure. why do you have to curse? And he just, in a matter of fact, Eminem sort of way shuts down the whole debate. Um, and even this, like everything, got everything about this went so fucking wrong. But get this, even the CD itself, they had put DRM on it, you know, uh, digital rights media, which is something that's going to become really popular in the early 2000s and into the 2000s. And it's going to basically kill physical media, or uh, just about kill physical media. Um, and that is that they there was a problem with the way that they put it on the CD, where what it would do is it would lock down people's computers and delete their hard drives. So, like... Mm. A Will Smith born to rain was like a ticking time bomb if you tried to actually put it into a computer. You know, yeah. it wasn't everybody that this happened to, but there were enough people that this was a problem. So, yeah, trying to, to, to again fight the losing battle of sharing music on the internet as if, if, if you like buy the CD and you want to like put it onto like an, like an MP3 player or something, you just kind of like download it onto your computer. You're then going to just distribute it to the masses and then you're not going to sell your millions and millions of records like that. I don't think the problem with this album selling wasn't that people were giving music away for free. I think this sounded like it had other problems why it didn't sell the 20 million copies. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, I've, I've gone on way longer than I probably should have for a kind of a footnote record like this but yeah but hey it makes sense too because this album is almost an hour long <laughs> yeah. oh, but again God. like I, i'll i'll stand by it like what this is this is a an average will smith record so if mm. if willennium sells that many millions of copies there's no reason this one shouldn't either it's it's fine it doesn't deserve to get raked by critics like it did they really went after that that album and i read some reviews and i was just like guys this is this is not 
not the place. For You're all being cynical. You're so cynical. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they felt really good about writing these things about a guy that's like a fucking millionaire. It's like living the, <laughs> the biggest movie star in the world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll move on. We'll move on. Um, this is actually a big month for punk. There's like, quite a few punk records to talk about, including uh, Avril Lavigne's "Let Go." Now, I, I, I've listened to this one uh, many, many times over the years. Um, I think that there's a, a, a sort of a, a per, like punk persona in the fact that like she wears baggy pants and eyeliner. This is more of like an indie rock album. Yeah, I think her closest parallel on this record is Alanis Morissette. Yeah, yeah, or or even like to to put it like more contemporary, like Taylor Swift, even. Yeah. I can see that. Or like this is much more Taylor Swift than it is like Joan Jett or The Runaways. Mm-hmm. And I think that she kind of has that punk label because there is the song "Skater Boy" on there. Yep. Which is and that's that was the, probably the biggest. Yeah, hit. and it kind of touches on pop punk to an extent. I mean, even mm-hmm. then, if you listen to a lot of the pop punk of this era, it's not quite there, but it definitely is. And it's talking about a punk kid that's skate skateboarding. Like it's the content is, is absolutely <laughs> there. Uh, worth noting, she's 17 years old when she makes this. She writes all of her own... Well, she co-wrote the tracks, but she has a writer's credit on all of the songs on this album. She obviously worked with a producer um, and other musicians to make this at 17. Um, it also had the song Complicated. Actually, Complicated might be the bigger of the two singles. Um, Maybe. Maybe. Sold 16 million copies. This is a fucking banger. This one sold so many copies kind of wild um yeah really solid for for a debut yeah you know and i even saw that there was this funny thing about her having beef with um oh gosh what's her name the the woman that won american idol um kelly clarkson Clarkson, yes and like because apparently during an award show like Kelly Clarkson kind of like clinged on to her. She gave her an award. She won like Best New Artist or something at like the MTV Movie Awards or something. It was a Grammys. I don't remember what it was. It was an award show. Um, and like Kelly Clarkson presented her the award and she went in to give her a hug but she was like kind of being a, doing this really like clingy hug and Alanis Morissette kind of like elbows her to like kind of like get off me please. Um, and apparently that started some kind of feud that was like the mi- okay. mildest of Canadian polite feuds you can imagine. Um, and yeah, and the funniest thing about it is apparently he appreciate that. Apparently, eh? like Kelly Clarkson, she's gonna have an album in two thousand three, and it's gonna have this big single called Breakaway. Um, and Avril Lavigne wrote that song. Avril Lavigne oh, wrote it for the session for Let Go, but didn't put it on the album. Hmm. So like Kelly Clarkson, her probably her single biggest her biggest track she's has was written by Avril Lavigne, who she's out dissing. <laughs> How strange. Very, very weird. Very, very weird scenario. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, if, if just just to wrap it all up, I would go back and listen to this record. It's it's worth it for this. Yeah, this, yeah, this, yeah for, for sure. Like, this is a, a solid, like, indie rock album. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think there's, there's... Oh, we already talked about the two big singles. I don't think there's a bad track on here. Yeah, it's also, I think, surprisingly diverse. I think that she mm-hmm. um, has no two tracks really do sound all that alike. And she writes, like, way above her age, I feel like. She's got a very mature sense of songwriting. And it's, yeah, it's it's good. And I, and I think she's relatable. And, like, again, 
I care. I, I probably care about more than, than you guys do or any listener that would be hearing me talk about this. But I just listened to an Alanis Morissette record, and I feel like that's what's lost on her record is that she's kind of become so unrelatable with the way that she writes mm. these songs. And Avril Lavigne is just like kind of there, just just telling you, telling you, you know, straight from the heart what it's like being a 17-year-old girl in not North America, we'll call it. It's it kind of funny. We're, we're, we won't uh, appear too far into Avril Lavigne's future on this podcast, but it is like she, she just dropped a new album. I think like within the last year or so, yeah. um, less than a year. And like you, you're talking about, like how at 17 she's sort of like writing above her age. Now she, she's our age. Now she's 38, yeah. and like her new stuff, she's kind of like definitely like more of like a pop punk artist now, and is sort of like writing things that you would expect out of someone who's like 23, 24. And you know, you're, you're, you're 38, but you know what? Who am I to judge? Write whatever songs you want. Who cares? Well, my thoughts on that would be that, um, this is, that is her most, her new album Love Sucks is like her most pop punk record she's ever made. It's the most punk. Mm. And she's kind of at the vanguard of this bringing back early 2000s pop punk sound. Her and like Machine Gun Kelly are released mm. some huge albums last year that, you know, kind of bring this, you know, kind of hot topic. They've attracted together. All rock back. You know, yeah. um, and, I, and I actually they've attracted together on that new album. Yeah, yeah, they do. And I, I think it's good, honestly. Like, I, I enjoy the music enough. I know it's cringy. I'm aware that I am aware it is cringy music, but it's enjoyable enough for cringy music, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. That's any closing thoughts. Nope. All right. Uh, Thumbs up. Yeah, we'll get through the next it's, one. It's definitely worth a listen. Yeah, yeah. We'll get through the next ones, uh, so we're not taking up too much time here. But uh, the Used released their self-titled record. Uh, very big in the pop punk emo scene. This is kind of an album that's sort of uh, uh, the shape of what's going to happen over the next few years in terms of like pop punk and emo. Um, I like it. Okay. Uh, there's a song called Taste of Ink, which is a huge hit for them. Um, one of my favorite songs on here is a box full of sharp objects. It's kind of a harder track um it's also short and sweet it's 11 tracks and it's 30 minutes um again you got to get used to that kind of nasally high-pitched whiny singing that then goes into screaming you kind of have to uh get into that to to really appreciate it and i think that's kind of what sets sets the what would you say it's the formula it's the formula that a lot of these pop punk slash emo groups are gonna follow um yeah Got Newfound Glory, Sticks and Stones. This was all right. Yeah. Um, I like this band a lot. We actually just talked about yeah. an album theirs not that long ago. Um, and yeah, this, this is more of the same. I think that this is a really, really good record. It's got that song, My Friends Over You, which is probably their biggest, their, their most commercially successful song they've ever had. They have always been like a youth hardcore band that just mm-hmm. kind of makes pop punk too. Um, they they, yeah. can, they can kind of tread both waters very, very, very tread that tightrope I guess you could say not water but they do it very very well um, you know it's oh I wanted to bring this up too about it because I think this is kind of funny typically hip hop records are the ones that do the featuring so it'll be like you know you can just skim through it and see like six featured artists on it you know this album doesn't have any listed quote unquote feature artists but if you look up who's doing background vocals or who's playing certain bass lines you would get Mark Hoppus the band H2O, the band Bane, and Alkaline Trio are all on this record at some point or another, contributing different parts to different songs. 
very very cool and you'll notice it too if you listen to any of these bands when their parts come through you'll like you'll instantly recognize them uh, also the band's all-time low in uh, story so far two two really big artists now in pop punk both of them literally got their names for their bands from tracks on this album um you know i'm not going to be able to sit here and tell you that it sold 20 million copies or anything it sold about a million copies uh but this is absolutely like huge huge influence on so many other artists and really really important for pop punk music in general one more dillinger four situationist comedy i have to bring these guys up i love these guys so so much they're basically these four alcoholics from the midwest and they uh make some of the best pop punk you've ever heard um i think that there's uh they're just so brash and loud and drunk sounding on record um but they're also extremely tight and have some of the best hooks in the game um absolutely recommend dillinger four and lastly no use for a name hard rock bottom yeah i listen to this one you able to listen what's your take yeah uh, actually I, we were texting back and forth about this one like about a week back they sound a lot like the Ataris yeah I can hear that and I was wondering if there was like any sort of connection turns out that there is not they just have a really similar sound and the lead singer sounds very similar to the lead singer of the Ataris um, but you know, the, the similarities like the the, the way that um, like the, the guitars are very similar the vocals are very similar there's also a sort of like earnestness almost a nostalgia to the lyrics i think like the the ataris are, are much more of like this this sort of uh uh nostalgic like or has this sort of a, a americana sort of sound to them and they do but this uh no use for name a uh, solid album um n- nothing really stood out to me as particularly stand out other than they sound kind of like ataris but that's not a bad thing it's a good sound yeah yeah um, i like this album a lot i like this band a lot um uh what would you say? It's it's a classic skate punk staple. I mean, I'm sure people have played a Tony Hawk game have probably heard a No Use for a Name track here or there. Uh, the song International U Day is on here, which is probably their single biggest song. Um, they also have what any number can play in um, Angela. I like those tracks just because they're fast. They're, they're probably their most up-tempo, fastest songs. I always think there's sort of an arms race in skate punk bands to see who can make the fastest track. So hmm. I think if that's what you're wanting to see those are your ones to do the time trial too. uh also sadly enough tony sly passed away in um 2012 so um it's a long time from when this album is recorded and it also feels like a long time ago but tony sly was um a beloved guy within the southern california punk scene so his death at 41 was pretty untimely i think it really hit a lot of people um good album they're gonna have better albums They've, and they've made better albums. This really isn't like a high point for them or anything. It's just a pretty good skate punk record. Um, Electronic Ambient, two I'll knock out real quick. Books, uh, Thought for Food. This is like a uh, indie... People love this one. This is probably going to be like on a bunch of top ten lists for snooty Brooklyn music <laughs> review places. They love this record. It's whatever. It's a bunch of field recordings and they're using a lot of like found samples. It's kind of like that album from Matt Mose. Um, it was like a, a chance to cut is a chance to cure or something like that. I don't know. I didn't really enjoy it all that much. Um, and also Biosphere releases Shen, How. I hope I'm saying that right. I love Biosphere, but this is not a really good one to get into if you like him. He previously had made Cirque and Substrata, uh, two of the best ambient drone records ever made. Um, and this is, again, it's much more minimal, um, and it also uses a lot of field recordings. It's just not that good 
there's a sort of um, environment that he, he creates on his albums that just feels a little I don't know there's just not enough happening here to make it feel like he's constructing these worlds like he did with his other albums um, and now we move into metal can full of metal albums to talk about and I won't spend too much time on these either but Korn released Untouchables you guys have any opinion on Korn or Untouchables what was uh, any big singles off of that one oh which one Oh, 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 the Korn record. Um, Here to Stay, the opener, was their big single that they led with. Hmm. And it was big for them, like as, as far as the Korn tracks go. Didn't we just talk about Korn, or did we like reference Korn? We referenced Korn. We, yeah, oh, you know what? Okay. What did we, we talk about Queen of the Damned. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. He was the, he okay. was the voice yep. of fucking, uh, uh, what is it, Belmont or whatever. I think I'm just thinking of yeah, the the Tom Cruise one character from the Lestat, well, the vampire Lestat. Belmont. Um. <laughs> uh, Belmont is from Castlevania. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, that's kind of what he's been up to. Um, so it's weird to think about them. This is our fifth album already, and like new metal feels like it's had the shortest life and death of any genre, aside from maybe like 1997 and ska music. But like, <laughs> new metal's already feeling like it's peaked. I mean, there've been a lot of big new metal records, but it's almost kind of like it's on its way out. And this is the band that's kind of started the trend. Back in 1994, they released their their debut record. So the fact that they're already on their fifth record is, is kind of surprising. Um, and yeah, this is the probably their softest. I'm not a, I'm not a big super fan of Corn, but of all of the previous Corn records I listened to, this is certainly the most like radio friendly not heavy album that they have so for me it's not a very good record um it does have that song here to stay and i remember reading a bunch of stuff about how they, they took like two years to make this record and had just an absurd budget they spent something like eight to ten million dollars making this record so hmm. yeah yeah spent a lot of money in the studio and it sounds expensive it just doesn't sound very good nothing is really particularly entertaining and they're sort of like if this is their genre they're kind of getting lapped you know there's other artists now that have come along that are doing what they have been doing better than they're doing it so I don't know uh, I'll move on to the next record Atreyu releases Suicide Notes and Butterfly Kisses this is a California based metalcore outfit kind of like a band we just talked about Kill Switch Engage, Lamb of God Poison the Well um, another really important band in that scene in that little um, American metalcore genre that's going to be taking off. Uh, has a track on here called Ain't Love Grand, if anyone wanted a song to listen to. I, I'd recommend this record. I think it's pretty good. I listened to this one. Oh, you did? What'd you think? Say your opinion you do. you. Pretty good. Okay. It was alright. <laughs> yeah. it was, <laughs> nothing really too much, to, nothing too much to add. Wasn't too rough and tumble? No, no, no. I don't think so. Okay. Um, moving on, we got Vader releasing Revelations. Again, another band we talked about not that long ago. Uh, Vader is a Polish death slash thrash metal band. Really good band. I love these guys. Um, they made a great album in 2000 called Litany, and this is another great, great record. Um, if you like just just tons and tons of riffs and really high BPM drum work and some pretty gross vocals, I think they bring it here. Um, just all around great, again, a great album that, again, mixes death and thrash metal kind of perfectly. That uh, chocolate and peanut butter combo works so well for them um this one is for me personally a vanity pick i love this album so much but i understand people are going to bristle at it if they listen to it but 
agoraphobic nosebleed releases frozen corpse stuffed with dope. Um, yeah, it's kind of a kind of a gross title. Uh, Friendly. Yeah, that was. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a frozen frozen dope? corpse stuffed with dope. Yeah, corpse. it's a it's a title. It's a, oh it's a title. God. It's a, it's a grindcore record. It's made by this guy, Scott Hull. Scott Hull is from the band Pig Destroyer, which I've already told you guys I love and you make fun of every time I bring them up. Uh, but, hey, you know, this is this is a really good one. I would absolutely recommend checking it out for people that like grindcore. Um, it is the most, like, freaking crazy hi-fi grindcore record you're ever going to hear. Oh, also, uh, fittingly enough, like, or the, the thing that makes this different, and why is this not just a Pig Destroyer record, um, is that there is no drummer on this. Um, instead, Scott Hull did the programming for the drums. Like, it's, they're using a drum machine instead of, like, an actual guy hmm. with a drum kit. So it allows the music to be a little more um, fleet-footed, a little more brisk, to do different things really suddenly. I think you couldn't just have a person on a drum kit pound these tracks out. Um, it helps that they have a drum machine to just sort of provide the absolute mania of, again, 38 tracks in 30 minutes. This is like just all over the place like it's hard to keep up with but you know repeat listenings to it you know stuff will stick out it's really really good um lastly you got the band origin releasing informus infitus and humanesis which translates to endless hideous savagery we actually talked about this band last year they had their debut record come out they're like the vanguard of uh technical death metal um this is a better than their last album, I think, just because it sounds less like a, a test run and more like actual music. I think that their previous record, they were just sort of showing off what they could do, and this one they actually feel like they tried to sit down and write some actual songs to showcase their talent. Um, it's great. It's a really, really good record. I would recommend it. Um, it's only 28 minutes long, too. It's, it's pretty intense. Obviously, it's technical death metal, but um, I think that there's a lot to appreciate with it. And with that, we're done. That's music. That's all the music. Very good. We did, we did it. it. We made it through. Uh, movies. All right. Fellas. Yeah. And we, we got uh, a, a bunch of good ones. I got a bunch on the yep. list. Uh, Ryan, you got some too? Mm-hmm. I've got, I think, how many here? Nine movies on my list. Okay. Um, did you write down any, like, uh, box office or budget? Yes. Like, I got the budget oh, and the shit. box office of my films. So did I. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> see if we're using the same source. I hope you just used Wikipedia. Uh, I'm so it's just me guessing this week. I don't I mean, know. Why is we're not gonna make you guess solo? That, that'd be mean. I'm still on the spot here. Just like, yeah. You know, when Ryan said that he did uh, get the box off of the budget, the thought briefly crossed our mind to say, "No, I did not." Oh, I haven't looked closely. <laughs> oh, just to be a. I haven't looked king. closely. I could just delete my numbers real quick. It's on a spreadsheet right in front of me, and then I could just you know I, I did not memorize any of these numbers. We'll leave that up to Wes. Wes, do you want do you want to play uh, the game? Or do you want to plow through this? Let's play the game. Okay. Why not? Come on. Okay. I just show. deleted all the numbers. I don't know um, any of these, really. I mean, I can make some educated guesses, but I don't know. Uh, did you have Bad Company on your list? I do. That's the first film I have here. By Joel Schumacher. So of... <laughs> directed by Joel Schumacher, who at this point needed to be stopped. And this movie might have done it. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, uh, okay, <laughs> so high notes. Start with the high notes. Falling Down. Uh, he made St. Elmo's Fire. And Lost Boys. Lost Boys. And low notes, he made Batman and Robin. Uh, were you going to skip Lost Boys? <laughs> how, how because if there was, like, point. if you need a movie with a greased up saxophone player, like, it is number one. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a good point. I think <laughs> it is number a, one, two, and three. It's in spirit. How, how dare you? <laughs> Batman and Robin a low point. How dare no, you? Sir? No, see, he's right about that one. Batman and Robin is a trash movie. <laughs> it's a pretty rough movie. Wait, is that the one with uh, yeah, yeah, sure or... is. Uma Thurman and oh, Arnold. God, that's a gem. It... Oh, you stop it. I watched, I watched it actually a couple of weeks ago. Thankfully with Rift Tracks. It's... Ugh. It's a mess. It's a mess of yeah. a movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's a mess of a movie that is, like, just... A no, joy. no. Are you thinking of the Jim Carrey one? No, no, no. No, no. I know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> no. We, we, we need to... <laughs> We need to reevaluate some things. The, the, the motorcycle race on the bridge that doesn't no, make any sense no, at all. Yeah, no, that, no, that, no. So bad, <laughs> bad company, starring Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock for some reason. Yeah. Um. Right. Did you watch this? No, no, I didn't watch this one. No, I didn't watch it either. Uh, this uh, general storyline synopsis: CIA agent is killed um, during some sort of like clandestine uh, a nuclear arms deal. Um, and he's uh, he's got a twin brother. Both roles is, is Chris Rock. Um, so Anthony Hopkins, who's the partner, goes to recruit the twin brother, who didn't know he had a twin, uh, to then join like the the CIA for this clandestine operation, sort of finish the deal and whatever. And if you're uh, bored by a totally outrageous plot, then this is the movie for you, because come on, they were each given half a medallion at birth. <laughs> this seems like. <laughs> Did, wait, did you say who the two principal like a movie like this is carried by the two buddy cop people? Did you say who they are? Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock. Oh my god, this is the yeah. weirdest pairing, right? And, and I, th- I think like the pairing is like it's supposed to be like this this action comedy, kind of like a a Die Hard kind of thing. What and it seems like, I don't know much about Joel Schumacher, but it seems like he really wishes he made Die Hard, and he keeps on trying to make Die Hard. And I haven't seen <laughs> Bad Company, but it seems like this is his movie. Like I'm gonna finally do it. I'm gonna make Die Hard, and like there's no way this movie is good, right? It can't be. No. Like it's just mathematically so improbable. Yeah, it got very bad reviews for what it's worth. I just trashed critics a minute ago in general, saying that they're they don't have a purpose but they were probably right on this one um <laughs> giving it some bad scores and i think that's what's so hard about this one is just that like this is a tried and true formula that's been done so many times and done presumably so much better that like you could literally like i i wrote down four movies you know tango and cash lethal weapon die hard with a vengeance 48 hours if you haven't seen any of those why would you watch bad company first Right. That should be. You should watch those four films. Look up other buddy comedy or buddy cop comedies. Watch those, and then not watch Bad Company. <laughs> so I'm I'm watching kind of like a, a trailer kind of thing for it, and it looks like Anthony Hopkins is in like a CIA room with a bunch of people, and they're watching a video of Chris Rock playing chess. Right. <laughs> and they're like, maybe we should get this guy. I'm like. Wait, what's happening? I mean, you know, that's how the CIA <laughs> recruits people. He's yeah. a lookalike who knows how to play chess. I mean, that's all it was. They were like watching a video of Chris Rock scams some guy in chess. I'm like, what? All right. <laughs> well, like so somebody put a pitch meeting together. Some some writer uh, and probably a producer put together a pitch meeting for a company, and they're like, who do we need? The Batman and Robin guy to do this bu- uh, buddy cop movie. That's who we need to get. 
I don't know. I want to watch this. I don't know why. It just looks like a train wreck. <laughs> and also, we just saw Anthony Hopkins in Hannibal. Like, yep. Like that. That is a, such an intense character that it's kind of hard to separate him from that guy. I couldn't imagine. What is he? Yeah. You know, watching this movie. What is he doing slumming it in this movie? I guess he needs a paycheck. He was also in, uh, I, I, I can't remember how long ago we talked about, Mission Impossible 2. Yeah, that's right. Um, but anyway, uh, you guys want to take a guess at the budget for Bad Company? Oh, I mean, there's a lot of explosions and you got a lot of people involved. Car flips. I mean, I don't know, 60? I was I was gonna say sixty. I'll go higher. Um, I'll go. I'll, I'll say eighty. You guys split the uprights. It is seventy million. Oh shit! Dang. Oof. Seventy million bucks. Um, do you guys have a guess about box office? I will give you a hint if you want one. I don't. I don't need a hint. Yeah, we'll take a hint. I'm gonna bet it went low. I'm gonna. You I'm gonna say one? if it was seventy. I'm gonna say it made fifty. All right, what's the hint? The hint is <laughs> you it, didn't want it, it did not make its money back. I was right. <laughs> all right, all right. I, I'm I'm gonna go with 35. Uh, 69. <laughs> <laughs> by, nice. by a million. If they could have just put a, a few more thousand butts in seats, they would have made their money back. But no, couldn't do it. All, all right. right. <laughs> uh, any uh, any thoughts or opinions about the divine secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood? <laughs> not really. All I think right. that this is very clearly targeted at a demo that we are not. So we're probably That's predisposed true. to not not care at all about this. But you know, I don't think it should it should come as any sort of shock that three white guys in their thirties have not seen this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it would be like us taking pot shots at Magic Mike. We're just not the ones that are supposed to watch a movie like this anyway. Yeah. You know. I mean, I'll, I'll trash Bad Company all day long, but I got nothing to say about this movie. Yeah, like Bad Company was definitely made for guys like us. Yeah, and it didn't get like bad reviews or anything. I think it, it supposedly did well, and that's the whole thing. I think it's supposed to be like a Steel Magnolias kind of Southern Bells mm. d- dealing with drama. Bad uh, Company. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, I don't. I don't really have anything to say about it. I'll just tell you guys, uh, box office uh, yeah. budget or the, the budget for the movie is twenty-seven million, and box office gross was seventy-three million. So did well. Oh, I was gonna guess twenty. Yeah, did well. Oh, I was gonna guess twenty. Did well. The Born Identity, fellas. There you go. Mm-hmm. So we were just talking about um, Matt Damon's career arc, and that this was mm-hmm. this was he was sort of had a string of not so successful or very low-key films, and with this one, he kind of makes a big splash. He's kind of for sure. kind of back on the big screen for everyone to see, and uh, you know, and it's sort of a role that he hadn't really done before. Like he's yeah. like an action star, mm-hmm. and I think this is supposed to be the anti-action star in a lot of ways. I think that you know, if you look at what's going around in the theaters, we literally just talked about a Jack Ryan film. We just talked about a Mission Impossible movie. I don't think we've had a Bond one recently, but like the whole Bond formula has just sort of become camp. So mm. like all of these ones have just become so big and so over the top that this is supposed to be the back to basics kind of yeah. small scale yeah, for sure. kind of there, there's no like huge action, action set pieces there are car chases but he's driving like a little rinky dink uh, car that his uh, the, the, the woman that he ends up teaming up with um, yeah. owns uh, it's a clunker okay. they're not like driving sports cars down like uh, like an F1 racing track they're just going down like side streets and alleyways mm-hmm. these things and like it, it is a really like 
tight action movie. It's, it's a longer movie, but it's really efficient. Uh, general premise, in case uh, people haven't seen The Bourne Identity. Um, Matt Damon plays this character, Jason Bourne. He is a CIA asset, an assassin, uh, highly trained, uh, goes on this assassination mission, ends up getting uh, shot in the process of trying to uh, assassinate this uh, political figure who's in exile, uh, falls off the, the edge of the ship, gets amnesia. And the entire movie, you are following him as he's trying to figure out who he is, and when he figures out who he is, how he is going to get away from like the this assassination job um, that he has, because then the, the CIA when they figure out that he's not dead, he's on the loose they need to bring him in, because this is a very clandestine organization, they're not like operating with any sort of like government authorization if they get busted doing what they're yeah. doing they're going to be people who are spending time in jail so they're worried about him on the loose, because they think they're going to get found out <laughs> yep and I think that because of that, you end up with all of these really fast... Like, it, that's kind of a trite setup. Amnesia is always sort of like a crutch sure. film for a character to sort of navigate through a story. But it kind of does it well enough here. Like, there because there's so many scenes of him, Matt Damon, just kind of being vulnerable, just sort of not knowing who he is and kind of slowly opening up to the woman that he's sort of accompanied on this journey. Uh, Franca Patente is her name. And she's great mm -hmm. in this movie. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, you know, and, and it's all kind of interspersed. These kind of quiet moments, um, uh, reflection for him, are all kind of interspersed with these just out there action scenes. Um, you know, again, that are all very small scale. Nothing too crazy. Nothing too big. This is not, not a John Woo movie or anything like that. Hey, yeah, like fights a guy with a knife with a pen. Like yeah, in his apartment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean. Oh, and. Uh, and and uh, he he scales the side of a building. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and apparently, that. that was Damon doing those stunts. He didn't have a stunt double for that scene. And at one point, he's like on a guy off the off the rail of a staircase, falling. Oh down. yeah, and like yeah, he falls into the to the body, soon to be corpse. Uh, Clive <laughs> Owen is in this movie. He's like this sniper guy who's also after Damon. Yeah, there's I think three different assassins that all kind of like are badasses in their own way like they seem like they could have been the stars of their own movies like mm -hmm. they're very cool um you know rounding out the cast is also like brian cox and chris cooper yep. um two great character actors delivering well, walton goggins has a small role yeah yeah he does um i also think it's interesting because it's it oh, julia styles sorry i'm interrupting oh that's fine that's fine yeah yeah julia styles will become a big th this is going to be a franchise of course and julia styles will be a much bigger character down the line and there will be some reveals that you don't know at all about in this movie that will happen with her character you know later on um so that's kind of cool but, but, but yeah, the thing that i thought was really interesting about it is also just how they film the action scenes i think that nowadays too many people adopted this style that was very innovative at the time where it was just non-stop hand, hand cam you're up in the middle of the fight you're very, it's very frantic, you feel like you're being attacked by a, probably what it feels like to be attacked by a shark you know, mm. you're just like flailing in water and you can't really make sense of what all is going on around you um, you know, like Wes, that scene you were talking about where he's fighting the guy with the pen like there's literally one part where I timed it out I counted 35 cuts in 10 seconds like you change 35 times in 10 seconds that is absolutely jarring 
to kind of watch yeah. it. Yeah, that's a lot. So that, well, I think that sort of thing works like in, in this movie, and I think in general, like in an action movie, it works fairly well when it's one on one combat. When you're dealing with like big, like uh, action set pieces with like a lot of people fighting each other, it just becomes too chaotic. Yeah, it's weird when certain movies really abuse that. Like, I forget what movie it was, but there was like one years ago of Liam Neeson, and he's just going all over a fence, and it's like forty cuts or something like that. He's just hopping a fence. I mean, it's it's absurd. I mean, it's 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 abused. <laughs> it's done. To, it's done because it is this frantic style that can kind of mask just kind of shitty choreography. Sure, sure. Um. Hey, anything else we need to say about Born here? It was really good. It, it, it's really good. I, I, w- I feel like watching it right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I loved it. I rewatched it for this. Uh, I think it's interesting that the director, Doug Lyman, was booted from the series um, after the first movie, in spite of this being a huge success. He apparently was, like, impossible to work with. Uh, he went way over budget, way over time, constantly reshot scenes, um, was just regarded as completely unprofessional and just about prevented hmm. him from ever making movies, even though, you know, this one was very successful. So, just kind of a funny backstory. It was indeed very successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys want to take a shot at the box office budget? Or, I keep saying that, the the, the, the movie budget? Ooh, I went first last uh, I'll say, again, because I think it went over, I'm going to say $80 million. I was going to go 95 Is it 60 Okay. So you know, even for being over budget, like that's not excessive. That's that's a, a smaller movie than Bad Company. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll go with but, the numbers over. I mean, I think this movie did really well. I'll say maybe like uh, two seventy. I was gonna go two fifty. Is two fourteen? Okay. Not bad. So it's still really really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. What do you got? I'll next? give you. A, I'll, I'll I'll give you a hint for some uh, for some other movies this month. It is not the highest grossing movie of the month. Ooh. That's yeah, surprising. not really. There's a couple movies. Oh, I, okay. I don't know the list. I don't know the list, so I'm yeah, just yeah. kind of like... All right. Next up is Scooby-Doo. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah they're, this the the live-action <laughs> adaptation of the beloved, I suppose, franchise <laughs> with a talking dog. Uh, let, let's see. Is this the one where Scrappy-Doo is the villain? This is, in fact, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's oh, this it's, is, it's, a, it's a short movie. You get Scrappy Doo, you get Scooby Doo, you get our boy Matthew Lillard, uh, friend of the show, as Shaggy, Freddie Prinze Jr., who was a big like uh, teen movie actor at the time, is Fred. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Buffy the Vampire, her, the Slayer herself, is Daphne, and Linda Cardinelli. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Um, is Velma? We know her, of course, from uh, Freaks and Geeks. So I actually watched this for the first time. I don't think I ever actually saw this. Over the first time ever? Yeah. Oh, it's painful. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, I actually, I probably wrote more notes about this movie than I did anything else. Um, <laughs> Take us away. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. So I think this is, if anybody said, what was the year 2002 like, I would show them this movie. <laughs> this movie, for whatever reason, perfectly captures the aesthetic of 2002. Um, and it is just also the fact that you have this cast here of Freddie Prince, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Linda Cardellini, like you said. And I think it's kind of insane that when you look back, one of the greatest performances all time in film history was in this movie, and it was Matthew Lillard portraying I, fucking I, I, Shaggy. He, 
he will go You're on incredible. not only to be like Shaggy and like uh, and the in the sequel they're gonna do a sequel to this movie, yeah. but he'll voice Shaggy in animated series. He'll voice Shaggy in video games. Like until the most recent Scooby Doo sort of incarnation, he is Shaggy, and that's how he's making his his money. That's how he's paying his mortgage. Yeah, <laughs> Shaggy. Yeah. Um, and so, like, what else would I say? So, I think the, so I, I think that the biggest problem with this movie, like, did you guys ever actually watch Scooby Doo growing up? Yeah, a little bit. I watched a bunch yeah. of it. So, like, I know oh, the yeah. whole premise and the formula. Um, and I think that what's the problem with this is that it's needlessly faithful to Scooby Doo. <laughs> I don't think Scooby Doo mm. matters at all. <laughs> and I watched a ton of it, and like, I don't give a shit about Scooby Doo. Like, right? It was knowingly stupid. Like I knew it was cheesy and silly, um, and I think that they very faithfully made a Scooby Doo movie. I think that they tried very much to to do the whole setup of what these films are, are go through, like the whole contrived premise of them trying to figure out who the person is behind this whole thing. And yeah, it's 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 so dumb. And I think it's weird that it also came out right around the time that Josie and the Pussycats, because like Josie and the Pussycats was also like a like an animated. TV series in the 70s but like they had nothing it had nothing to do with what the TV show was about it used it just as a as a recognizable like property to make a film about right. that was actually about the modern music industry and that was had some great you know great it was well cast great characters fun and interesting story this is just like why did we need this why did we need let's make an 80 minute long scooby-doo episode Right, with some of the most painful CG I've ever seen. Like, the CG in this is... Oh my god, it is so terrible. It is like Scorpion King levels bad. And who was the audience for this? Because, like, there's too much, like, adult weirdness for this to be a kid's movie. And any adult that watches this would think this is the dumbest fucking thing they've ever seen. You know? Like, there was literally... that The longest bit in this whole thing is fucking Shaggy and Scooby having, like, a farting contest. <laughs> and I bet Lillard is totally committed to the entire thing. I'm pretty sure that guy is yeah. method. Because like I, I've seen like um how how he would prepare for this role is he would actually like scream in his dressing room to like get the hoarseness in his voice, which would like destroy his vocal cords for weeks. Yeah. Again, that's dedication. That's uh, some real method right. shaggying. And and we, we actually we, we just saw Matthew Lillard in Thirteen Ghosts, which is a movie last year. Yeah. In two thousand one. Which is a better Scooby-Doo movie than this is. <laughs> oh, by the way, this is written by James Gunn. Fun fact. <laughs> Shut the fuck up! Yeah. What? Written by James Gunn. Holy uh, crap. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know what else to say about this thing. It's just so weird. It's just so bad. Um, yeah. Don't know why they did this. God. I don't know why this had to be successful. Uh, what do you guys think the budget was? Oh, there's CGI involved. Talking dogs. I'll give you a hint uh, if you want one. Go for it. I'm, Ryan, I'm do you want it. a hint? Because gonna give you a hint. Gonna give you both a hint. I mean, I I don't care. I have I have a number in my head already. Let me hear it. Uh, it's the uh, highest budget movie so far. Previous to this was Bad Company a at seventy million. I'm gonna go 80. Yeah, eighty seems like a good guess. I'll go. I'll just give him a little space. I'll go ninety-five. Eighty-four. Eighty-four. Okay. Eighty-four million. Yeah. How much did it make? I think we did probably did pretty pretty well. Yeah, I think I'll say two hundred. Would you say Wes? 
276. Yeah. Um, Made lots and lots I mean, of money. I mean, it's Scooby-Doo. It's a kid's movie. I mean, yeah, it's just... It's just it's summertime. Yeah, out of, out of all the movies we've talked about so far this month, is probably the one that parents are most comfortable taking their kids to. Oh, did you see the runtime on this, by the way? It's 80, oh, it's 80 minutes long. It's 80 minutes yeah, it's, long, and it opens with a 10-minute, basically, mini Scooby-Doo episode. Like, that's how yeah, yeah, it's, little it's, content they had. <laughs> Technically, like, not feature length, or just barely feature length. Yeah, oh my god. It's a brisk 80 minutes. I guess there's something positive. Oh, the, it's the band, over quickly. And Sugar Ray is in it. Did we even mention the fact that Sugar Ray is there? No, I don't think we did. Oh my god, it's bad. <laughs> it's so bad. All right, can we run uh, away? Did you guys uh, watch Wind Talkers? I did not. No, this makes the list of worst World War, like worst American war films ever made. Mm. I actually have not uh, seen the list. I mean, I have seen this movie. Uh, years ago, I found it terribly uninteresting, which is probably why uh, it, it ends up on that list. So it's it's Nicholas Cage and um, a guy whose whose name I don't have in front of me, so I forget his name. Uh, forgive me. Our other male lead, but basically during World War II, um, the military recruited Native American uh, soldiers to use uh, to to transmit uh, messages in code, but they would just use their native language. I think it was Navajo in this particular movie. Um, they were like transmit like messages in that language because it's very difficult for uh, the Axis powers, uh, Germany and Italy, to decode that sort of thing. It was a language they'd never got come into contact with before, so a difficult time just understanding it. So, and I guess like the general premise of the movie is Nicolas Cage has like a squad of troops that's protecting these uh, uh, message transmitters. This movie, like just from. Uh, what I remember of it and still images it looks like it's trying really hard to be saving Private Ryan but um, that that's a, a high uh, bar to achieve so I'm not even sure why they bother, bothered trying I think like after saving Private Ryan which I think it was 2001 people should have just um, let World War II like, give it some space for a while because right. yeah uh, that's it's I don't know and it wasn't even that long ago that we had that movie we were we were soldiers, I think, or something like that. The one with uh, mm. Mel Gibson in it. Oh like, yeah, there are already a bunch of these, and like, there's also Black Hawk Down, which mm-hmm. was like genuinely innovative. So like, new to the genre, kind of doing stuff that we hadn't seen before. So yeah. Oh, and by the way, this is directed by John Woo, who's yeah. Chinese, and I'm sure absolutely hates the shit out of Japan. So was probably very happy to make a movie uh, showing the Japanese be fools and get murdered. Was this a, a Pacific Theater movie? I thought they were in Europe. Are they? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, don't I, know. I, I have no idea, actually. No, no, I was just kind of, I guess now that we, we mentioned it, I was kind of assuming they were in Europe. Yeah. Well, and also, like, John Woo had made... This is, like, where his career kind of starts to suck, because he had just made, like, going back all the way back, Hard Boiled, Hard Target, Amazing, Broken Arrow, Face Off, Mission Impossible 2, you know, not as finest movie but like it was still solid and then he makes this and I think his films after this are going to struggle yeah um you guys want to take a stab at the budget for this war movie starring Nicolas Cage I know it was a bomb I'll probably I mean I'll I'll give Wes that clue I know for sure it was a bomb because I read about how bad this thing did I I, I can't think of is this wait wait where are we going to first budget or budget um, seventy-five. 
I'm gonna say it's even bigger. I'm gonna go. I'll I'll go. This is a huge budget. 110. This movie had a budget of 115 million dollars. Yeah, I knew they pissed away money on this thing. And to uh, give away minor spoiler for the rest of the list, this is the highest budget movie of the month. Yeah. What do you think it made? Worldwide box office. Uh, I say it back, 130. No, it didn't. It was a bomb. It, I'm going to say. I'm oh, it was a bomb. Oh, never million. mind. Uh, 77 million. Yeah. It, it uh. made. All, like a little over half its money back that it's not good it is a bad uh, a bad situation to be in yep right. do you guys want to do you guys want to talk about Joanna man at all <laughs> no I didn't, oh my god I didn't write anything unless you want to talk about it feel free I I don't really want to say much but like even at the time this is a sort of nightmare premise for a movie and if anyone is morbidly curious, uh, a professional basketball player, for some reason, through through a, a very thin premise of the movie, uh, gets banned from men's basketball, but on a technicality can still play women's basketball, and I guess he needs the money, so he pretends to be a woman to play women's basketball. And uh, even at the time, this was like a premise of a movie, like, really? It doesn't feel like you should be doing that. So in the year of our Lord 2023, this seems like a really awful terrible premise for a movie yeah um i I think that and that it's sort of in the same way and i genuinely enjoy the film ladybugs but it's mm. in the same way that ladybugs is maybe the worst single message that's ever been delivered to young girls in film that just simply adding one boy to the worst women's sports team makes them the best uh Um, so i'm sure that juana man probably (laughs) treads that water as well and probably comes away with the conclusion that adding one man to a woman's basketball team makes them the best. And I'm sure they like try to mask like the, the, the misogyny and everything with like some sort of message like, oh, he learns how to respect women by the end. Like nothing about this premise of a movie is respectful. Like this is this is bad. Um, it had a budget of $16 million to show that there is some justice in the world that did not make its money back and made about $14 million bucks. Good. Um, it's probably a bad thing that that many people went and saw this. What has to be trash. This cannot be a good film. Yeah. But Lilo and Stitch, on the other hand... Oh, God, you guys. This movie is delightful. It is legit. Oh, this movie's great. And, and again, like, uh, in, in stark contrast to Scooby-Doo, not a long movie so efficient it moves the plot forward so quickly it has very endearing characters Absolutely. and it, it makes it makes the most of its plot in the time that it has and doesn't overstay its welcome mm-hmm. yeah I actually have a bunch of points I want to bring up about this that, that, please take us away shotgun blast all of them out here um, so this is like a bad, yeah. this is a bad era for Disney films like the mid 2000s is really a rough go of it but this is not only like the best of this era I think this holds up with all of their best stuff. Mm. Like this is a fantastic movie. It's got my, my kids love this movie. Yeah, it's got so much charm and character and wit. It's got adorable, wonderful characters telling a very simple and sweet message for the family. Like it hits all the notes just right. Um, it never feels too like schmaltzy either. Like these are mm. very serious stakes for this family, you know, and it, that never gets lost. Um, I think that the voice acting is very, very good, and it's um, 
I believe it's Tia Carrera plays the older sister who has to look after the little girl. Um, and of, of all, so uh, Lilo herself, she's voiced by this woman named Devaney Chase, who was the younger daughter in Donnie Darko and was, believe it or not, hmm. the ring girl in The Ring, the horror film. Oh, shit. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So she's the voice of the little girl in this. And Stitch, Stitch, you guys may not know this name. It's Chris Sanders. Chris Sanders, by the way, is also the writer, director, and producer of this movie. He was hmm. apparently a big cog in Disney animation up until this, and he had pitched this idea apparently a decade prior, and they finally let him take a stab at this. So he's also literally voicing Stitch while being responsible for writing the script, directing the film. Like, this is very much his thing, and that's why it feels unique to the other Disney ones. It's also not a musical. Um, they do right. this really cool thing where it's just Elvis tracks. They use all these Elvis staples throughout the course of the film. Um, there's no bad guy. It's just the circumstances suck, and you end up liking all the characters in the end. Um, it's just got well. If, if there is a bad guy, it's the it's the big alien who's trying to get Stitch off the planet. Yeah, and I think that they all kind of come. And that's the thing that happens at the end of it is that they sort of come to terms and, mm. and realize that it's best for Stitch to just stay there, kind of with his family that he has. Um, yeah, it's it's. Gosh, this it's just such a good film. I feel like I could watch it on repeat and never get tired of it. Um, you know, there's again, I think it's also just again very witty, very got a very good sense of humor about it that never feels condescending. It's always very funny. Yeah, yeah, it's got like all these real like colorful, bombastic characters. Like everyone in the cast has like these really strong uh, character traits. Um, and you, you were talking about like you're trying to get it made for ten years. I wonder if that's. Uh, uh, a symptom of that is that it's not a musical. It doesn't have all these songs. Whereas, you know, uh, a decade prior, you know, you, you had all your movies like Little Mermaid and Aladdin and The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast, and all of these are musicals. So it seemed like... Well, well, well Sting make a whole <laughs> track for it, and then they were like, no, that's Emperor's not good. Emperor's New Groove, like, famously, like we talked about uh, <laughs> several months back, not a musical, even though, like, they, they had uh, brought in Sting, like you're saying, to do music for it. Like, they brought in, like, uh, I think Elton John for uh, Lion King. So, uh, maybe at one time, uh, Empire of the Sun, I think was the original name for Emperor's New Grove. Maybe at one time it was intended to be a musical with all this stuff done by Sting, but turned into something else. But now that, um, you know, maybe their, their focus has turned away from music. Because we, we talked about the Atlantis movie. Has that come out yet? I think we talked about that, but did we? Yeah, I, there, think, it, I think it's come out. Yeah, but there, there's at least one other movie between this and uh, Emperor's New Groove, going backwards. That uh, also not a musical. Anyway, what were we saying? Lilo and Stitch, big thumbs up. Wes, your your thoughts? Oh, it's a great movie. Have you guys ever seen the show that they I mean, made this afterwards? A thing. Like, there's a sequel and there's a TV show. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because they they do this a couple of times. Like there was the the Aladdin TV oh, sure. show, and that was just absolute garbage. This show actually was pretty good, the way I remember it. I mean, this is years back. I, I don't actually know if it was good or not, but I remember having fond memories. I of know the, show. the Aladdin TV show, like these Disney like spinoff TV shows. They're they're like Saturday morning cartoon stuff. They're not. Yeah. You know. Yeah, this one was cute. It kind of had like a. Um, Jackie Chan Adventures okay. kind of thing, where like a new one popped up and they had to find them, and then a new experiment, and then and then they had to find a home for it, and it was kind of one of those kind mm. of setups. 
Um, but instead of like the new talisman, it was some new experiment thing that did some wacky thing. Like one was made out of electricity. Oh yeah, all the other experiments Others. they had to round up. Yeah, yeah. Weird stuff. Yeah. This one's really into grilled cool. cheeses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you guys think of the budget was for Lilo and Stitch? God, I can't even. It's an animated movie. I don't know. Forty. I don't know. I was thinking like sixty. Is eighty million? Okay. Kind of, kind of Ooh. a pricey movie. But what do you think it made? About three hundred. Yeah, that was going to be my round ballpark number. Uh, we're like the same guesses. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> hey, all I can say is, man, you've been on point. You've been making some good guesses. I'll say two. I'll say. Uh, uh, I'll say three twenty. Two seventy three. Oh, shitty on lower. Two seventy three. Um, so you know, didn't quite get the three hundred million. Also, made three million less than <laughs> Scooby Doo, which is unfortunate. That, that's, but that's cost guys, four yeah, million less. So bigger return on investment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. Let's go over to Minority Report. All right, here and, we go. And Ryan, Ooh. I know you had a lot to say about this one. I do. I don't even know if I feel like I want to say anything about it. We've been going for so long. <laughs> but yeah, I did have a lot of opinions about this one. I don't think I'd ever actually sat through and watched the whole thing. Really? Just a week ago when I put this one on. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, so it's a big, high-concept science fiction film about this this whole scenario that exists where people are able to predict murders that are about to happen and um, one of the most successful detectives that works with this crime unit preventing these murders um, they predict he will murder someone so therefore he kind of goes on goes on the lam and then the same group that he's worked for basically has to start hunting him and it involves it devolves into this, this sort of murder mystery I guess you could say um, and it's just totally all over the place it's a very weird movie to, to kind of to, to deal with and all of its different facets and it's also two and a half hours long and it's yeah, not it's a long movie oh by the way uh, Spielberg Spielberg is the yeah. director of uh, you know Saving by Ryan and just recently AI so 1941 yeah 1941 <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's based on a Philip K. Dick story and I think that a short that, story yeah yeah a short story that he did two and a half hours to, to tell a narrative of um, and I I, I kind of just bristled at the whole premise to begin with just because it feels so dystopian like I think that they mm. kind of want to paint this as like a good thing that this technology exists but the there, there's so many problematic things about it that they're basically keeping these three people hostage to do this and a bunch of children died to make this whole thing even work um, and also that it apparently is not accurate it can be manipulated to sort of frame people Oh yeah, that's like the the premise, the the, the sort of uh, uh, way he's going to get out of the situation he is he's in is because like they don't always predict the same things. So you know the the big life lesson of the movie is like uh, the 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 future is written in stone. You can choose your own destiny, sort of thing. Um, yeah, it feels like there's but, that, but yeah, that, yeah, they want to have that like high level concept for it, but I don't know, it just doesn't really pay off. And yeah, and the fact that the fact that they proved that it's fallible means that literally everyone that they've convicted of mind you crimes that they didn't even commit in the first place. Right. All, all had to be released. Some people yeah. who probably were bad guys and should have been in jail, like now get to be released. 
because you know it's it's obviously proven to be faulty. I mean, not yeah, yeah, that's yeah, like the, the sort of like end result of the entire movie is like the the criminal justice system that they had set up in this one city had to be completely dismantled. Yeah, exactly, and um, you know it's it's also that it's, it's such a stupid setup that it only predicts murders. They they had some mm. reason. I'm sure they gave us a reason for why it only predicts murder. It doesn't couldn't stop someone from being sexually assaulted. It couldn't stop. Yeah, it's because uh, uh, murder is the most heinous of crimes. Right, sure it is. Which of course we we all know and the most jaywalking. heinous of crimes is theft of money. Right. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, like uh, so Tom Cruise is the main character in it. And he is very committed. Like you don't you'll don't find mm. Tom Cruise giving bad performances. He's just sometimes in bad movies. And that's kind of what this is to me. Again, if you had told me Spielberg and Tom Cruise got together and made a film, I'm shocked that the end result is this bad. Frankly, like and just like the 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 structure of the movies, like you were saying, it's it's very like segmented. You have like these very distinct. It's like it's not even like a three act movie. It's like a four or five act movie. But every act is going to be like this. This almost um, it, it almost feels episodic. Like this should have been uh, a five or six part miniseries on Netflix or something as opposed to a feature length film it's two and a half hours long and there there are some things that even like uh, uh, feel rushed like when you get to the end it feels so much like okay um, this is how we solved everything this is how everything turned out roll the credits you get it in a voiceover uh, but everything like uh, it's very much okay it's, it's very perfunctory okay this act is over this is the next thing to do um like uh, an episodic miniseries or even a video game where, okay, we've completed this section, now we move on to this one where this is the very clear goal and then when that's done, we move on to the next part and there's a very clear goal there. Um, and it goes from like the you, you get the, the, the setup and showing Tom Cruise like working with this technology that like, this is supposed to be like 30 years into our future in the year of our Lord 2023 but the technology they're using seems very quaint. Um, with like the screens and how they're like waving their hands around. Oh, and uh, there's this part super early on where they need to move something from one computer to the other one, and Tom Cruise is wearing the gloves and waving all the images around to try to like get clues about where the murder is going to take place. Um, and then one of his assistants takes basically like what what the amalgamation of a flash drive and like takes it from his computer and dumps it into Tom Cruise. Like, oh, you don't have AirDrop. You don't have airdrop on your big high tech police like <laughs> pre crime future predicting software. Um, anyway, it's just uh, funny that it, not not a fault of the movie, but it's just funny like what they thought was going to be futuristic in two thousand two as opposed to what we have now. Um, well, I'm guessing that sorts of material is probably written in the sixties or seventies. Right, definitely before nineteen eighty two because that's when he died. Yeah. Um, but you know who who knows if any of that was was part of the uh, the, the source material. Well, no, obviously they expanded the content there because it's a short story that they built into a, a two hour movie that still somehow felt incomplete. And and uh, it's it's weird. It's it's a very like structurally odd movie because some things feel dragged out. Like he has a conversation with. Uh, this this older woman who was one of the inventors of of pre crime I guess like one of the people that refined the system of using these people uh, basically as like meat to like constantly give them nightmares to to predict murders uh, he finds her and she has one scene it's like twelve minutes long and it's entirely a conversation it could have been two and a half minutes but they drag it out so long. With with all this uh, this exposition, 
Yeah, I think that's one of the things, too, if you watch it, is that there's actually very few characters in it. There's actually very few mm. meaningful characters that need to actually say anything or do anything, that it's wild that it ends up being two and a half hours long. And also there's, like, the Colin Farrell character who's supposed to be, like, a, uh, a foil to him, I guess you could say. And he literally disappears for about an hour and a half in the middle of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, they, they set him up early on to be a foil to, like, he, he's the one who's going to be, like, investigating the system and seems like he's going to be the one to bring it down and then you know when Tom Cruise like when his name comes up then Colin Farrell's the one who's going to like chase him down but yeah then then he disappears and then like he kind of turns into the good guy but just as he's like making that turn to be like okay I found the corruptness in the system and it's not Tom Cruise he's not the one who should be after it's this other guy I should be after and then he gets killed yeah it's kind of like that scene from LA Confidential when he uh is at the dinner table with the guy and he cracks the case and then like just the commissioner mm. just shoots him right then and there because he figured it all out. Which, you know, I guess like in Colin Farrell's case you have to because he's not the hero. We gotta see Tom Cruise wrap everything up. Yeah. Well, and again, it also just proves how bullshit the system is that they have some mm. excuse for why his room can, he can murder people in his room and not get caught doing it. Like, right, right. I, why is it that, yeah, they, they didn't, they didn't predict, well, I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't predict that Colin Farrell was going to get murdered because Tom, like, uh, uh, Tom Cruise had dragged out the one girl from the milk, and the other two, the other two can't predict murders by themselves. They need her oh, yeah, yeah, for some yeah, reason, it, for, for some contrived reason. Yeah, this. Yeah, I, Again, I really like, don't know what to say about it. Oh, and by the way, not related to any of that though. Not the narrative stuff. The CG in this movie is pretty bad. Hmm. We've seen a lot of CG in other big budget films this year even that has actually held up pretty well I think Phantom Menace not Phantom Menace but, um, Attack of the Clones Attack of the Clones had a million problems but the CG wasn't one of them it actually looked pretty good and, like the new Spider-Man movie that just came out looked fantastic yeah. Yeah. this one just looks kind of silly and shitty and it's not because they didn't put money into it how much money did they put into it uh, Ryan you're up first uh, I'll say a flat hundred I'll I'll go I'll go seventy five. Hundred and two million. Pricey movie. Oh, okay. What do you think it made? I think it did pretty well. I'll say two fifty. I'll say just three hundred and fifty eight million. Damn. Yeah. This was oh. the highest grossing movie of the month. Jeez. Oh. Uh, do we need to talk about Hey Arnold the movie or Mr. Deeds at all? No, no, I don't think we need to talk about that. I, I enjoy Mr. Deeds. We don't need to talk about it, but I enjoy Adam Sandler Mr. Deeds. getting some money, being like wholesomely rich. Yeah. Okay. I'm fine with that movie. I got nothing oh, against you know, it. You know what we didn't do? Um, movie of the month. Uh, Born Identity. Anyone want to nominate anything else? Yeah, I mean. Yeah, I think. Lilo, good, yeah. Lilo and Stitch, maybe? Lilo and Stitch Ooh, would be a good one, good. too. Oh. Like one, one and one A. Yeah. They're, two, they're so totally yeah, different. I'm fine with that. go with one or the other. Did, did we, we didn't pick an album of the month either. You're right, we didn't. Uh, got anything you want to... If we had to, gosh, probably just go with Avril. Yeah, I would agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, and Game of the Month is obviously Eternal Darkness. Yeah, clearly. But that's going to bring us to the end here. Next up is going to be the official show. And we'll... Uh, oh, oh, um, on the official show, here, here's a tease for you guys. Um... Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna scour the internet 
for some gospel or gossip, but there's not really a whole other rumors flying around. I'll, I'll see if I can come up with uh, two, maybe three. But I do have another game in mind. Interesting. Okay. Ooh, okay. I'm on board. Uh, that that oh, we will boy. that we will play, and I won't tell you what it is on air. I'll just leave that as a tease for the official show, which is next up. But that's it. End of podcast. So long. <laughs>